He runs as though the devil himself is in pursuit. And well he might, for he saw what no man has ever seen before. Just like the others. It's coming in on the west side. Look! There it is on the roof! Three experts in science and security need a band of men who try to find a way to exterminate X, the unknown terror. Only to find a tunnel of fear from which there is no escape. Dean Jagger as Professor Royston, top secret scientist. Edward Chapman, Elliot, in charge of lab operations. Leo McKern, Inspector McGill, security officer. The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and tonight returns Mark Maddox. How are you doing, Mr. Maddox? I'm doing really good. I'm doing really good, even though we're in this uh, Andromeda strain sort of situation. You know, to experiment with your own life, damn it. <laughs> it, uh, it is It is kind of like we, we, we've known for a while that we were probably probably traveling down that that one time stream that uh, you you want to back up and try again on, and this yeah. this really kind of cements that idea into place, don't you think? Can we start the year over? It's, it's, that's a simple way of putting it. Twenty twenty is uh, is not turning out to be the best of years by any stretch. There's a lot of good things going on. I think it's it's strange what we're going through is going to alter things in our world. I don't know how yet, but people working from home. Uh, people communicating with each other. I just did a, a, a television show uh, where they did uh, the beginning hour of entertainment was done uh, by, in podcast style or with Zoom. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, then then they played the movie Gapa, the Trifibian monster afterwards uh, out of uh, the uh, WSRE out of uh, Pensacola. And I think it's actually up there. I think it's actually up where you guys are in Tennessee. I think it got, uh, what do you call it, where it, uh, a subscription or wherever it gets oh, really? sent out. It's a nightmare theater. But, uh, you know, okay. um, you know, so it's weird. And I find myself talking on the phone with friends that you normally might talk with them once a year or something. But now there's a little bit more like, I got nothing to do. You got nothing to do. I got nothing to do. So... <laughs> I mean, for yeah. God, for God's sakes, I've talked with Ted Haycraft twice this week. <laughs> I need to get him on the phone. Actually, that's uh, he and I haven't talked for we haven't talked for a while. And actually, he uh, yeah, I, th- I, I think he got Troy onto this podcast. He's been he's been a part of up there his way. I need to talk to him. That's good. That's a good idea. I think I will uh, I will do that. Thank you he for reminding is, me uh, to contact Ted. Ted, Ted is a, is an awesome guy, and I love him. I, I pick on him, but he's a great guy, and we he can run down in rabbit holes of information. Oh, this yeah. movie, yeah, this uh, main writer, but then this person and this person were co-scripters after the fact. I'm like, holy crap, Ted. 
you know. <laughs> uh, and he just did a real great uh, uh, podcast with uh, Tim Lucas uh, the other day that I listened to. It was a two-parter. Oh, yeah. And that was really good, too. Uh, but but Ted's, Ted's, Ted's pretty damn sharp when it comes to film knowledge. He's yeah, he's kind of amazing. He and I end up in these long conversations where we zig zig and zag back and forth between movies and music, pretty pretty uh, intensely. I, right. Well, another thing too I love about Ted is he's upbeat about almost any film subject. He doesn't he doesn't attack things and you know doesn't he turn his nose. There's stuff he might not care for so much, but he doesn't do that. And that's one of the things I like about hanging out with him is he's he's uh he's a he's a pretty upbeat person when it comes to talking about all kinds of films. Agreed, agreed. Uh, I did not know we were gonna have a little love letter at the beginning of this episode for Ted, but <laughs> Ted hey, you know what? We're the only people on this planet given him many love, so you know. because uh, <laughs> oh, trust me, nobody else is. But nobody loves nobody loves him at all. Is that what nobody? You're no, as a matter of fact, I was talking to Lucas Hardwick tonight about since if I can't make it to to Wonderfest that he needs to smack Ted extra <laughs> for me, you know. Hey, this is from Mark Powell, you know. This no. this this little bit of pain is directly from Mark Maddox. Yeah, there you go. Uh, well, so. listen, I just I just wanted to say that uh, the uh, the rondos were recently announced, and uh, once again, you took home one of the little, one of the little bald dudes. Congratulations! Well, yeah, artist of the year. Um, this is the sixth time uh, that I've won artist of the year, and I have to say. I, I, I love it. I mean, it's one of those things where I, I work on this kind of work all year. Uh, it goes out into all various you know uh, avenues, whether it's magazine, book covers, Blu-rays, et cetera, et cetera, private commissions. And you know to, to get that statue, I mean, it just validates it. It's, it's, it's love from the people that love monster movies. So I'm really grateful, truly. Well, I've got to say, you know, you you just keep pumping out the work. And here lately, I mean, was it just the past couple of weeks we've just gotten announcements about? Uh, well, you've got that one coming from Severn, which is uh, Horror as a Spider Island, right, right. And that then was the. Fun one. Yeah, and then the uh, another one from Scream, which is Kiss of the Vampire, which is very nice, of course. Yes, glad you, glad you were able to fit the uh, the castles the the castle background in there. Yeah, I really did, and and I'll and I'll say this: um, in order sometimes to get artwork to work, you have to kind of cheat a little bit. Like part of that castle is on one side of their heads, and the other side is you know back behind them, and the other side that's actually split. But I'm like, you know, people don't care. They just no, want to see the castle. Get, so you, yeah. Yeah. And I had done a couple of different sketches and sent them off uh, for, uh, you know, for them to approve one of them. And I had uh, one, one of the covers was the bat attack, a bunch of the vampires being attacked by the bats. That was one. And then another one was of the, uh, oh goodness, uh, Isabel Black. And I forget the name of the lead vampire who was also in the reptile. Uh, yeah. they're, they're both in there and there's a castle in the background and they're both standing there staring at you, but they picked this one and you know, I, I had a great time doing it. I love the film. I mean, they, they hand me these assignments as films that I love that evil of Frankenstein was like a gift from heaven. And, but they, they give me these, uh, assignments and it's like, I mean, they could actually give me assignments for films, a I've never seen, or B, I don't even like that much. And I'd still have a great time doing it, making something, you know, you watch a film, it's like, eh, I don't really care for that film that much, but there's still something in that film 
that is good. But, you know, it's like Stan Lee with stuff. You should always look and see what's good about a film or a book or a comic or whatever. Yeah, find the thing that actually you enjoyed. Yeah, and I'm 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 I mean, I, you could hand me a a a, a bad film. And I can still say there's still something in there worth making really good art. And I've always said this is the one where people go, oh, you're full of crap, Maddox. When I say if somebody came to me and said we have a restored version of Creeping Terror, you can't make a good cover for it. I said, just watch me. I can do it. <laughs> Even, oh, I, th- I think it could be done. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, just, you know, but nobody's hired me for that yet. But I can do it, you know. <laughs> It's a bad film, though. Put, put put out the word. It's the one time. It's the one time I go. Oh, that's a bad film. I mean, there's a couple that come really close, but that one, that one's a real stinker. I don't know. God Monster of Indian Flats. That one's pretty awful. <sighs> I think it's been a long time since I've seen that one. A yeah. Long well, long if time. if your memory of it is faded, thank your memory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, tonight we are definitely talking about a Hammer film, and I don't know that we've have we talked about a Hammer film before. I cannot remember. Uh, you know, let me get my diary. How the fuck am I supposed to remember what we're talking about? <laughs> I, for, I forgot. You've blacked out more than you remember. Pardon, None. sir. <laughs> yeah. Well, with you, I drink, so I have to black out. But uh, no, the um, uh, we did Outer Limits. We did Frank. We did Frankenstein Conquers the World. I got on to you about James Bond. I'm almost afraid to ever go back and listen to that James Bond episode we did because I know I'm going to be like, if I actually listen to myself do that podcast, it's be like, honey, why are you throwing that rope up over the rafters and getting that stool under? You? Why are you doing this? I'm like, oh my god, I'm have to go back and read. I have to read that episode. People enjoyed. People enjoyed the James Bond episode, but I'm more than willing to. to talk james bond again with you anytime oh, we will we will we'll definitely talk james bond again um but i don't i don't think we've ever talked about hammer i don't you're think you're probably so. right because i think in a way i've kind of stayed away from hammer a little bit because in the uh, in the podcasting world for monster kids hammer is pretty well covered i mean saturated and it's yeah, saturated yeah. with me i live it i mean i am such a hammer artist. Uh, yeah, I mean, hammer's what kind of made me uh, in the early days of doing doing artwork. It was almost exclusively hammer films, and I didn't mind. I love hammer movies tremendously. Well, yeah. But uh, I mean, I have no clue as to some of these films how many times I've watched them. Somebody was asking people online, you know, name 10 films that you've watched so many times, you know, and it never gets old for you. And it's like, if I started that list, it would be, it would be pretty stinking long because there, there are some movies I know I've seen in excess of 50 times and, and some of them, it's like more than that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's just over the course of a lifetime. It's yeah. just, uh, it, it gets, it gets a little outrageous. Sure. And I think that that's why I think the one that we've chosen is both a lesser known film and definitely lesser talked about yes. uh, for various reasons. But, uh, and it's, right, and it's right, not which, a gothic, which, you know, it's not it, a gothic it, It's very much, uh, it's, it was, for, it's from 1956 and that's right on the cusp, right before Hammer took the uh, the path that was going to turn it into what we know it is today. You know, when you think of Hammer films, that really kind of started with uh, The Curse of Frankenstein, which is a year after this film. And uh, up until then, right. Hammer had done a lot of different kinds of movies. Uh, not that they didn't continue to do different kinds of movies after they became, you know, the Hammer House of Horror that they became. But uh, in the mid-50s, they were turning out, you know, film noir, all kinds of different things. And they had had a massive hit 
uh, with Nigel Neal's The Quatermass Experiment. And uh, it was just a huge hit. Of course, it was adapted from Nigel Neal's uh, six-part television version of that same story. They turned it into a feature film uh, with Val Guest directing. And it was a huge hit. And, of course, Hammer, being, you know, smart businessmen, wanted something they wanted to follow up. And uh, Nigel Neal told them to go pound sand. He wasn't about to just somehow produce another Quatermass story that he wasn't ready to write yet because, well, he was a he was a prickly guy. And, and so right. Hammer went off and decided, well, we can do our sure. own thing. And uh, they produced the film X the Unknown, which came out in uh, 1956. And uh, it really is kind of, uh, it's almost a Quatermass film, but not quite. The scientist at the center of this story, the good guy scientist, is uh, less prickly and less of a le- less of someone that you kind of have to warm up to. Actually, I, th- I think the, the the scientist character in this, played by Dean Jagger, is actually a really really easy to like kind of guy. Yeah, he's um, now. Let me ask you something. Let's let me get my dates here right. Okay, you talked about the Quater Mass X Ex- yeah, experiment, yeah. which is different, which is different from the television show, which is just called the Quater Mass Experiment. And then they did uh, on television. They did Quatermass Two. Was that before X the Unknown came out? Um, I'm going to say that it's Quatermass Experiment, and then Quatermass uh, Two, or was what do they call it? I forget what they call it well, in this the, country. I don't even use Quatermass that title. Experiment, which was but, called the Creeping Unknown here in the states. It came out in '55 from Hammer, but it had been a television, a, tele, a six-part television thing for for for, for uh, yeah. British television. So it was pre-X. It was pre-X The Unknown. Oh, yes, of course. That's what I'm saying. That's my point, is that two television series that were massively successful, then two Hammer films that were very successful, and then they're like, hey, we need yep. more material of this type. And so they got, uh, who was it that oh, wrote Jimmy it? Sangster it was a uh, young guy. The, uh, it, was, yeah, it was his actually his Sangster first screenplay. It, right. he, he'd been a guy who'd been uh, a gopher at Hammer, had done a, a bunch of different jobs at Hammer, kind of rising through the ranks. And uh, th- uh, this was, he'd, he'd never really thought about that, that much about being a screenwriter. And uh, he, got, he jumped at this opportunity and turned this one out. So this was his first screenplay. Right. And, and so... They're in this mode of intense science fiction, uh, uh, leaning over towards horror. Right, is the name of the game. I mean, science fiction was huge. There was so much stuff going on in the United States with you know giant insects. You know, radiation made me do it. Radiation. All different. <laughs> now, 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 now I'm just I'm just picturing that on a marquee. Radiation made me do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there was so many of those kind of films going on over in this country. Uh, of a type, yeah, uh, very very science 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 fictiony sort of stuff. They had gotten away from the gothics, and so uh, you know, Hammer was looking at this stuff. The TV shows were incredibly successful, and they're like, okay, we need more, so we get X the Unknown. Now, I will say this: that is absolutely hands down my first Hammer film. I'm positive of that. That X, was the first X, Hammer film is? I ever saw. This yes. one is X the Unknown. Was your first Hammer film? Yep, I remember we were living in we were living out in the farmland in Germany, and I remember seeing. I don't know if I saw the whole thing or not. I saw part of it, but my brother, who was older than me by about six years or so, he he watched it. And when this the one uh, doctor in the uh, in the uh, radiation lab or whatever in the X ray room or whatever, where where he starts to melt and his thumb starts to expand and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. My brother got really upset. 
Well, it's a which, it's a gruesome scene, yeah. Which is funny. I saw it on television, and then like a year or two later, uh, my brother went with me, and I told you the story before, where I went to see Quatermass in the Pit on the on the big screen in mm-hmm. full color, and the Colonel Brain character melts, and I lost my mind. I mean, I went into deep shock from the horror of seeing this guy melt on, you know, right in front of me, and uh, and so Hammer could get you. It could it could really you know, get to some point. And I saw this stuff, you know, Quatermass experiment had a little bit of it with like the, there was the dead orderly in the, in the uh, elevator. Well, not just, not just that, but the, that poor astronaut who's slowly metamorphosing, metamorphing over the, the course of the story, turning into this creature, absorbing, you know, absorbing a potted plant, all this kind of really creepy body horror stuff. I mean, right. But I'm talking about actual, like horrific things done to human bodies. I mean, watching a guy's arm kind of start to turn into a plant and you see the spines go, is, is scary. It would be very disturbing, especially back in the 50s. But actually seeing a, like a melted, half-rotted face on the floor of the elevator, and then later in this film, we have other scenes with people sizzling and burnt skin and skulls and stuff like that. It would have been for people then what Quatermass and the pit was to me in the in around 1967 i mean it was still that kind of thing but now they had color and their special effects were had a little bit of a bigger budget so it was it was intense i have to say that the new blu-ray from uh, scream factory is very good uh, yes. the, the last time i saw this movie i'm pretty sure was off of a bootleg tape long long ago and so it's been a real joy to see well it's you know there's a there's a real beauty to high def black and white that yep. is fun in a way that even the most I don't I don't know what it is man I get so much joy out of out of high def black and white movies there's there's so much fun because it's almost as if the, the 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 tones and textures when they're well photographed and they have all these those wonderful shades of gray within them there's almost so much detail work that you can right. f- freeze it anywhere and get and and almost kind of tilt your head and feel like it's almost 3D at times. It's a really strange effect. And I, I there, wonder if maybe a, I've just been eating the wrong kinds of mushrooms when I watch these things. <laughs> I don't know. But There's a weird, there's a word that we used to use in art school and in photography school for great use of tone, lighting and shading and dynamics and stuff like that. Guess what the word was? Even in black and white, guess what the word was? No idea. Color. Really? They, used, they called it color. I mean, my art teacher used to call that color. And what it was is, okay, recently I picked up the uh, Mill Creek edition of Ultra Q. Yeah. And beautiful 35 millimeter, completely restored. It's just a joy to watch. I'm like you. Uh, two years ago, finally, like the last guy to the party, picked up A Hard Day's Night, the Criterion edition. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you look at this stuff and you go, there's a, there's still something in here that is, maybe it's the fact it's throwing all the color out and now all you can do is look at, at shade and dynamics. I don't know what it is, but I find black and white in some ways to be, I'm not going to say it's better than color, but maybe there's one thing that you're just not distracted by and that you just get to sit there and deal with this uh, 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 surreal. Maybe maybe it puts it, it's the fact that it puts you back into what, that you're watching a movie because where else do you see black and white? You don't see it in real life. Yeah, yeah. You know, unless I really, maybe I really thought color. about that. I just, I've yeah. always reacted to black and white um, 
I think with these horror, with these early uh, science fiction horror films too, I think it it also I don't want to say it covered up a, a mistakes, but I think in color there is a possibility you lose a little bit of that um, uh, the feeling that you're almost watching a documentary or something. You know, uh, what's the term that, that we use when something is, is, is filmed so well you feel like you're watching? Oh, you, a, mean, you mean like a, the style of a, of a docudrama or something like that? You, well, a docudrama is like when I watch The Exorcist. I don't feel – I mean oh, I feel you, you, like – Or, or are, you talking about, uh, are you talking about cinema verite where it feels as if you're watching something that's really happening as opposed to – Yeah, yeah. yeah. As, as opposed to a fiction, yeah. Or, or that you're being, you're being, what you're seeing is you're a fly on the wall looking at something from real life when it's done real. And I think a lot of these films, especially the Hammer films, those early Hammer films that were in black and white, they really had something about them that um, it just pulls you in. Uh, the, it, the, the, these things work on every level. I mean, the acting's great. Uh, the uh, the intensity is the uh, uh, James Bernard. Uh, oh, and uh, yeah, and this has a very James Bernard score. There's no, I mean, this is definitely the same guy who wrote the the the, the music for Hammer's Frankenstein and Dracula movies. There's no doubting it. He, I will say this about his music: it's like if you're watching a horror film, the one musician that never let you off the hook was James Bernard. It would just. Eh, eh, <laughs> eh, it's like oh my god there's like no little there's no john williams in this it's like and you are in a horror film and you just might as well just just go ahead and shit your pants right now because that's what's going to happen and this music's going to help you get there because that's the way he was man it was intense well this is weird if this was your first hammer film i honestly cannot remember what my first hammer movie was i it's lost to the mists of my childhood i really don't remember but it's weird that your first one was one of those. I mean, because they didn't make a whole lot of science fiction movies, which is a, a shame. I mean, that's definitely a, a pathway on some alternate Earth where Hammer was best known for making low budget science fiction movies for the for the 50s and 60s. Especially especially when you get to Quatermass in the Pit. Yes. When you get to one of the best. One of the best movie, ever made. Science fiction movies, period. And then definitely right nice and snug in those few years around 2001 A Space Odyssey and Planet of the Apes and, and, and Fantastic Voyage and all that kind of stuff. Britain comes out with this film, doesn't have the budget of any of those, but god damn is it good. I yeah, mean, it's just yeah. such a terrific movie. I was terrified of that film for years. It messed me up. Every time I saw it again, I got more and more used to it. I think it's one of the best films ever made. But anyway, it's, it's brilliant. There's, there's no way around it. But the uh, once again, when you see if, if you've ever watched the Quatermass Experiment, and if you haven't, allow me to suggest that you do, uh, yeah. seeing this as a follow-up is very it's very it's very easy to see what you know what they were doing which is okay so we kind of follow the the template we kind of uh, you know we have some of the same characters this movie the I, I was amazed i was i was looking back on it and it's like there are no female characters in this there's that female nurse and that's it wow yeah well there's a mom there's a mom, mom the, right or, and, yeah yeah they're they're not really they're not really in a uh, in a uh, i mean even in um in Quatermass Experiment, I mean, there's the, uh, the it was the girlfriend or the wife of the astronaut. I can't remember uh, Karun's. Uh, I believe, I believe it, it was wife. I think it was yeah. wife. Yeah, and then uh, in uh, the second one, there was definitely some female, uh, definitely some women in there too. But yeah, this one really is very thin on the on on ladies being in there. 
I don't know, a bunch of guys walking around talking about radiation and crap. <laughs> yeah, I know. So. It's, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's very much a sausage party, but it's not one that, I mean, it, 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 I had to think about it afterwards trying to remember if there were any female characters because I was going through the cast list and realized, oh, wait a minute, there really, there really aren't. Yeah, there's a little, there's that little girl there next to the fence, to the stone fence or whatever, where the mud monster starts to kind of crack through and everything. And then there's her mother, and yeah, women and are it, definitely yeah. in the background in this one. Um, there's that really randy nurse who who gets to, gets to watch the the handsome yeah, fellow turn to mush. That guy was a real weedy roast, wasn't he? He's like, oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, the girls told me about you, and I like it. (laughs) I don't remember anything like that happening in my life, especially with a woman who looked like that. It's like this woman was, oh, I I wanted you for months. Oh, you're great. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Why don't you step forward and let a guy know? Yeah, really. So, okay, so the movie starts off with, go ahead, Rob. Oh, well, oh, okay, okay, so X the Unknown. Uh, well, let's, let's see, the movie takes place in uh, the uh, Luckmouth region of Scotland, uh, which is up near Glasgow. Glasgow. Uh, members of, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce even Scottish place names because that is my brand. Uh, members of a group of soldiers are taking turns using a Geiger counter to find a small and harmless hidden source of radioactivity in a big, wide pit area. Uh, Private Lansing finds another mysterious source of radiation where groundwater starts to boil. As the other soldiers begin to run, there's an explosion. Lansing, who was closest to the explosion, dies of radiation burns, while another soldier has bad radiation burns on his back. And I thought it was very cool that when the... uh, when the our, our main scientist shows up and starts looking this situation over, he the the radiation burns. He realizes what the only thing that was blocking it. The clothing wasn't blocking the radiation, but the but the uh, the, the thick stock of the rifle the guy had over his back was. And so there's like the outline of this guy's rifle on his burned back. Yeah, they they had actually. I mean, this is basically guys out on the maneuvers or whatever, and they're learning how to find uh, you know something radioactive with the Geiger counter yeah. and. Uh, the, the, the mud, this movie is so, it, it just starts right off with this certain kind of look to it. Mud, dirt, uh, gravel all over the place. These guys are in these pits, you know, running, you know, doing these tests and all this stuff. And then, you know, because they put a piece of radioactive material out and they're trying to let guys go and find it. One more guy wants to do it. it, it it's sort of, it's, it's sort of one of these things where we find out later that that little piece of radioactivity was kind of a a, a, a calling card to it was, ba- it, was, it was bait without them knowing it was bait. It was bait. Well, yeah, it was right. It was teasing something, which okay. Look, we're going to give you spoilers. So if you haven't seen the film, stop this show right now and go watch it. If you're if you're desperate not to have spoilers, but Rodney and I are going to go over spoilers. And in this case, people die. What we find out. What? Oh, jeez. So they uh, they end up. Um, what we're finding out is that this is basically a creature from uh, I don't necessarily the center of the Earth, but way deep down in the Earth. That probably, and this was the scientist theory in the in the show that at, at, you know early way back, uh, you know, when the Earth was all molten and all that kind of stuff, there might have been some weird form of life that lived on the surface, but as the Earth cooled, it went down into this in, into the ground and might have gone miles and miles and miles, maybe even gone to the center of the Earth. Well, it was, it, it's like maybe 
the food supplies run out down there. Maybe it's hungry, and this radiation that we've got up here is starting to tease it into coming up through, and it makes a big fissure. And this is where you see these guys getting burned. Of course, nobody knows this at the time. It's one of these things where, where this is all a mystery, and it's very well played too. Now, the difference between this and the two Quatermass films is you had. I can't remember were the Quatermass uh, televisions were they a half hour or were they an hour? I can't they were, remember. Uh, they were they were uh, half hour segments, six six parts each. Okay, half hour half hour segments, and I believe they were both done live. I'm pretty sure all of them were, even Quatermass uh, and the Pit later, the live version before Hammer did a film. They're pretty amazing to watch. I love them tremendously. Unfortunately, Quatermass Experiment. There's only the first episode or two in existence. The, somebody threw them out or erased them or whatever the hell they did. Idiots. Yeah, the, 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 uh, the, great, the great purging for space and to, hey, and to reuse, our, yeah, to reuse the, the film. Brit, the, the Brits should hang their head, but the Americans have got their own things to answer for with television shows and movies and stuff that they threw out or burned or whatever. Yep. But the thing, the difference is with this movie is that this was written to be about an hour and a half, an hour and 40 minutes long. So they didn't have to do with what they had to do with the, with the Quater mass television shows. They'd have to edit this down, like basically two, three hours worth of, of television down to an hour and a half movie. So these guys had, so this has got a lot of stuff already for lack of a better term, not in it. It's already thrown out. It's almost as if you, if it had been a three-hour television, you threw everything out. So this is this one plays a little more simple, I think. It does. It's I not, will. I will not say not in a bad way. Not no. in a bad way. But but it's it's like you know we've got this problem here. Something for some reason the ground opened up, and we've got one guy dead, and we got another guy with severe burns. And I love what you're talking about, where they they pull the guy's shirt up and. That they, 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 they hold the machine gun that he's normally got slung over his back. It, it fits right there with the burn and the, and the uh, machine gun silhouette is on his, his skin is fine where the silhouette was. The rest of the skin is burned. Um, that guy also will end up playing uh, somebody from the home office in Quatermass in the Pit, and he was also in Doctor Who. I love that actor. I forget his name right at the moment. It escapes me. Well, this movie's packed with a lot of a lot of actors who turn up in a bazillion different things, including oddly enough, Anthony Newley. I know, which is so strange because this is the first time watching the movie that I realized, holy crap, that's the Anthony Newley, the the, the songwriter, the the musician. Holy crap, he's huge. He was huge later as you know, even. Though I wasn't a big fan of his singing, I love the man. You know, I don't know, Jesus. Well, yeah, but as a song, as a songwriter, he did a, he did he did really good stuff. I mean, he hung out with uh, the some of the James Bond people and stuff. I mean, he did a lot of good work, uh, and he was good in this film. I liked him in this movie, although he didn't have a very big part. No, this is very early in his career before the before the music career kind of kind of really took over. I mean. The thing is, if he if he if his career had completely stopped in 1971, and the last thing he'd ever done was the the songs for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, he'd be cemented in. He should be put on Mount Rushmore, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, he. Uh, the thing about this movie is, while it, the the timing was great for the heroes in this film, because just at the time when they start to realize there's this radioactive mud sludge creature coming up from the center of the Earth. Our hero, mature, older man, scientist, cool dude, laid back guy, 
happens to be experimenting with ways to diffuse uh, nuclear, well, he says nuclear weapons, but I'm assuming it would work for almost anything that's got intense radiation. Yeah. yeah. So there's this lab of his with glass and, and this and this box with a darn, and there's like a canister of radioactive material, and he's got these two uh, things that sort of look like radars going around inside the lab, little miniature ones, and he's trying to basically make uh you know the way that uh the that atomic particles break up you know in a nuclear explosion make that not happen you know you basically have uh and i'm probably not saying it's probably somebody else who knows the film even better than i do that's laughing at the way i'm describing it but basically <laughs> making a nuclear weapon or some kind of new something that would be dangerous to human beings just not happen with this, I don't know if you call it sonic or or, or waves or whatever. Essentially, so, it's a it's a science fictional idea that uh, sounds plausible while you're watching the movie, and of course, is not. Well, yeah, you would, uh, you know, you know. I will say this: when every time I watch the film, I think one thing: boy, that'd be great if they could really make that. I <laughs> know. Wouldn't it be Wouldn't it be great to be able to? It'd set be this wonderful. Kind of thing up? Yeah. Now we've got the guys that the guys that have invented the atomic bomb, and like the guy said in the thing. You know, we split the atom, and the guy goes, "Yeah, we all sleep a lot better over that." But yeah. that if we could now come up with something that would deactivate and make nuclear weapons harmless, oh, that'd be wonderful. I mean, that would get us out of so much goddamn anxiety as a planet. But uh, so this guy has got is working on this thing, and then he gets called in to investigate. You know, he's looking at the burns on the guy and all that kind of stuff. He starts getting perplexed, and then. Uh, I mean, does it move to the part with the kids next? Is that what happens? Well, uh, first, first he 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 uh, he, he meets. Uh, he's not an inspector, but he is definitely uh, an, a law enforcement officer named McGill, played by Leo McKern. Yay! Uh, who's there? Yeah, I know Leo McKern. It's like, uh, man, I love I love Leo McKern. Of course, oh, he's great. Uh, he was he's he's in uh, three episodes of The Prisoner, which of course makes him yep. automatically someone who needs to be taken seriously. But must be prayed to. Exactly, but of course he was you know primarily known for most for most English speaking people for playing Rumpole the Bailey for like sixteen years. To the point where he was, he was so he was so angry that that's how that that's how people identified him. To the point where he would be seen out in public, and they would just call him Rumpole. And right. uh, but uh, Leo McKern, just a, a great character actor. I, I this is the youngest thing I the youngest I've ever seen him in a movie. Uh, he looks so young. I mean, he still looks he still looks middle aged because it's just Leo McKern. It's just the shape of his face, but he's got jet black hair. You know? Yeah, yeah, he's got jet black hair, and it's starting to recede, but it's not it's not too far back yet. So, but it's just he's 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 great. And so you have that that dynamic set up now in this film, that which was kind of a, a calling card of the Quatermass uh, films, all through all of the Quatermass stories to a degree, which is you have the the uh, the very serious scientist. And a, a kind of inquisitive investigator guy who, you know, they, they're the two characters who can bounce uh, ideas and questions off of each other, which, of course, allows them to kind of dig deeper into something, give them a different perspective on the information that they have in hand. And, of course, also serve to let us poor suckers out in the audience in on what the hell is going on. Right. Right. And then it is. Yes. He, um, he is uh, great in this film. Yeah. 
Uh, I've always thought he was great. I think what I like about this movie, uh, I, I don't have a pro- I'm one of those people I don't have a problem with Brian Donlevy as Quatermass. I think that um, people complain about it in comparison to the television shows and the more soft-spoken Quatermass. I've always argued, yes, those guys are completely valid and they're great. But at the same time, when you're in a world where you're begging for money and and getting stuff done and trying to do stuff on a budget, there's a possibility you're going to be a loudmouth bastard. So I, when I see uh, when I see him do Brian Donnelly doing it, I'm like, yeah, I I'm I'm I like him. But I think that Dean Jagger is a little bit more close to uh, the the television quater masses and stuff. He's a little yeah, bit more yeah. uh, a little bit more laid back. I know she got real quiet. I guess you don't agree with me. Well, on no, it's just that I had no problem with with Brian Dunleavy in the role until I saw Quatermass in the Pit, and Andrew Keir is so freaking good in the role. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's really good. You know, I I think so. But I my only thing with that is that in the television show, Quatermass was a little more uh, in the forefront, and Roni was still kind of the second fiddle. Yeah. I remember seeing that movie as a kid and thinking Roni was the star and not Quatermass. Now, I don't know if that really matters or not. They're both fantastic. Uh, uh, James Donaldson is wonderful in that movie. But uh, but Don Levy is, well, we know what the reason that he was put in there is because he was an American and they wanted to bring the film back over here and have an American name dupes for us idiots, Americans to go see. I get yep. that. But I still like him in it. I like that intensity of him. It's just different. It's just one of those moments where you go, there's Bela Lugosi Dracula and there's Christopher Lee Dracula. Well, you know what the, I mean? In this case, I mean, uh, Dean Jagger as as Dr. Royston, he's he's quite good. And and, and as a yes. character, unlike Brian Dunleavy's uh, portrayal of Quatermass, yeah. Jagger as Royston is actually a guy, like I said up front, that I liked immediately. I don't dis... I, there, there are... There are moments in the Quatermass experiment in Quatermass Two where Brian Dunleavy needs to, you know, you almost want to like grab the grab, you know, reach into the film and grab the character and go, calm the hell down for just a second, and people won't think you're such a prick. I agree, and I think I think that's the whole point. Is there we go? Yeah, we're playing him as a prick. Dean Jagger is immediately friendly and likable. I would say that uh, Edward Chapman, who plays uh, the guy that runs the facility there, John Elliott or whatever, he is. He is a little bit more of the of the Brian Donnelly style character. He's yeah, a yeah. Bit, bit of a hard ass. His son is really, uh, really nice. Everybody kind of kind of likes him, and he's the the you know the son is nicer than the dad kind of thing. And obviously, but, obviously, a competent scientist on his own. So. He is, but he's tired of, I mean, it's almost like you expect Dean Jagger. He's always mad about Dean Jagger. So I mean, he's almost wondering if off on the side, Dean's smoking a few bongs or something, <laughs> you know, and that's, you know, that's the part of the show they didn't put in there. But, uh, but then, but then the thing is Dean Jagger and Leo McKern really get along. I mean, they really kind of, yeah, they're friendly. it was, it's almost funny. It's almost like, I wonder maybe because this movie was written uh, you know, it's a you know it's a separate thing uh, that they had an American in there, and they go, "Look, you got to get an American here." They said, "Let's let's write an American that we like." You know, let's get an American in Maybe. here that we like. That's you know the the kind of American that because Jagger is very likable in this film, and McKern and him get along quite well. And even later, 
uh, when Edward Chapman, uh, you know, is seeing that Dean Jagger's being proven right, he turns to him and starts to apologize. And I'm like, okay, good. So this is all sort of, you know, I mean, it was very well done. I think that they they did it and they did it uh, with economy and speed and everything. But um, so yeah, so the next thing I think what happens is is that uh, oh, we have the, the, little, the, the two boys. The little boys. The little boys go out at night. Now here's what drives me completely crazy mad is what? that i almost i almost had dinner with one of them a year and a half ago who fraser hines uh, fraser hines was yep. at pensacon and i was going out with uh tony isabella the creator of black lightning yeah and, and all that stuff and and uh, my friend anthony taylor our friend anthony taylor goes hey i'm going out to dinner with fraser hines <laughs> like, <laughs> you know and i love jamie mccrimmon from from, from doctor, doctor who, who. i love him yes yes but my thing would be <laughs> Look, dude. I mean, uh, you know, X the unknown. I got, I got to, and I, and I didn't get a chance. I didn't get a chance to meet him. So I was like, oh well, you know. I still had a great time with what I was doing, but, but to me, those two little kids going out to that, to that old, it's, it's like a little castle or something, a little a fortress. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a little, it's a little ruined uh, kind of fortification or something, and it's, it's a real place, yeah. which, is, which is really nice because it, it makes it. That much easier to believe because they're on an actual location. Almost this entire movie was shot on real locations. So much of it is filmed outside. It's kind of, kind of creepy, especially when it's constantly raining and muddy as hell. And and at night, well, the thing is, is like when I was a kid, I lived in Germany. Well, like once again, where I saw this film. I mean, less than, I don't know, less than a quarter of a while, a mile away from my house was a destroyed castle. We used to go play in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was bigger than the one in this film. And then, well, then, of course, across on the mountainside, there was a, a, a German a German machine gun-esque kind of thing, an ammo bunker or something. We don't know what the heck it was that was up there in the mountains near my house. I mean, it was pretty cool living over there. But uh, so I watch this film, and I get a little bit of that sense when I see these kids going to this little castle. And what happens? The kids are there. we got a dare. We're at oh, yeah, night. Yeah. We're going to go over to the castle and all of a sudden something really shows up that really is bad. And you hear this. What was cool is this a quasi sort of Geiger countery sort of a eh, yeah, kind of, sort vague, of noise. Kind of vaguely theremin crackling, but not really yeah. a theremin. Yeah. And crackling and crackling mixed in with it and all that kind of stuff. And the one little boy, not Fraser Hines, goes up to it and, and you just see a light and you see the kid really get scared and start running for it. Well... I mean, the kid goes back home, both of them run, run and uh, next thing you know, the kid's dying in a hospital bed. From radiation, you know? from radiation sickness. From radiation sickness, from radiation burns and sickness and everything. And so, uh, and that's the thing too, is that you see these parents in these uh, in these upcoming scenes where it's like, you know, they're there, the, the, the mom is crying. I mean, this is like, this isn't even like your kid got hit by a car. Yeah, you know, no. your kid, your kid, uh, you know, fell out of a tree or something. This is like they still didn't even understand. It was a very interesting One thing about science fiction is it puts you in situations, you know, a food for thought, you know, kind of thing. Well, also, so. this is this is before that weird period of time for a couple of decades in like the 70s and the 80s, where it seemed like it was just completely verboten to kill a child in a, in a, in a piece of speculative yeah. fiction, science fiction or anything like that. It's just. The, the desire to stay away from the from the killing of children as a part of a story is kind of weird. And there, you know, there are tales. Different screenwriters have talked about how they they had to alter and rewrite things to do to to not kill kids in certain uh, certain movies over the decades. 
Sure. And then yeah. luck, luckily that started to, that started to change in the late nineties where you could actually start killing children again. I mean, not that, not that I want to sound all kinds of bloodthirsty and desirous of murdering small toddlers, but at the same time, when you wall off uh, an entire particular type of character within a movie, then the, the audience becomes incredibly aware of it over time. And it becomes something yeah. that they no longer, they, they know they no longer have to worry about these characters in the film. There's really no stakes when they're on screen because they're kind of safe because there's this fear of killing them on screen. There's certain things that they do. I mean, when you and I were kids, I mean, they'd have, you know, in the seventies, they'd have like R rated films that would show you lots of different things. I mean, you had things where children were put in danger. What was that one? Uh, was it the other with the two little boys or whatever? And, oh, yeah. And, great, great, great film. Great book, too. Yeah. And, uh, the, of course, The Exorcist putting a girl in heinous, insane danger and having her do things, you know. So there was some of that. But uh, I know what you mean. It's like, look, I don't want to sit there and say, hey, Rodney, let's go to the movies. What do you want to see? Well, there's this movie where they, you know, throw uh, 30 children into a helicopter blade. Let's go. <laughs> You let's know, go check I mean, that out. Let's go check that out. I'm I'm aching to see that, you know. So, no, it's not that. It's just when you know that there's rules. Sort of like when I sit down nowadays with streaming and there's a movie coming on or when you know the subject matter would normally be treated in, theater in an R-rated sort of a way. Yeah. But then you're watching it and things are very intense, but you can tell that – they're pulling their punches. They're pulling their punches on profanity. That's usually the first thing that lets you know that this is not going to go to a certain level. I mean, it's like you tell me I'm putting on a Walt Disney film. I'm going to say, well, there's a good chance in the old days it's it's rated G. Uh, you watch something from 60s television, it's TV 14, blah, 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 whatever. But when you go in to watch some rabid zombie movie television thing and all of a sudden you realize they're not cussing, there's no nudity, not because you necessarily need to see nudity or cussing, but just the fact that there's no chance of it happening now. Yeah, they're, now, they're not they're not striding even up to those lines and, and letting you know that they know they exist. They're kind of staying away from them in total. Yeah. Right. And then and then and I'm like, eh, this ring is hollow. There's something about it that rings hollow. Now, we're talking about tonight's movie that we're talking about is that it did take nerve. They didn't show it on camera. They didn't, you know, I think maybe they showed them pulling the, 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 the sheet up over the boy's head, maybe. Yeah, they, 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 you mean in, in this film? Yeah, they did. Yes. But but the thing was, it was done, for lack of a better term, in a gentle way. It wasn't like the kid was there having a seizure or whatever. And then, you know. Well, yeah, and, still, and, and you didn't see his face melt off. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Oh, no. Now, that wouldn't have happened. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But you still look at it and you go, wow, that's kind of nervy. I thought about it the other day when I was watching it again. It's like, wow, that's kind of nervy. I mean, you've got these guys, you know, they, they just they just offed a kid. Of course, you know, it's a radioactive mud beast, mud monster. So what the hell does it care? I mean, this is so, this, this creature is so foreign from us. It's not, it might not even realize that it's attacking people. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is not a, this is not what we would think of as a, as a sentient creature. This is. This is uh, something that is essentially just hunting for food. So right, right. 
Well, this so is after, this, this is something okay. I really like about this whole segment because th- this is uh, this is pretty decent little little bit of script writing here from you know a very young script writer, which is the the kids are daring them daring each other to go into this little ruin because uh, they're they they think that this uh, local kind of this local kind of uh, possibly homeless guy or poacher. Uh, lives in there, and that's what the that's what the idea is to go in and find out if he's there. And of course, later on, it turns out that he does he does live there because he and that's where he set up a still. And I love the the internal logic of the whole thing, where it's this place where there's this creepy legend about the area, which keeps people away from it. And this guy takes advantage of it to set up his illegal still, and. Uh, that becomes, you know, that becomes part of uh, that becomes part of the story because it's, you know, in, in in a direct line that this creature is following, and that's just pure bad luck for this guy. Um, there, there's just so many neat little things, and these are, I think, some of this. I I would hope that it comes out of the script, but part of it just feels just so so organic to shooting on location, as if well, we have this great location. You know, I, I wonder if it was originally written written into the script to be. A location of this type, or if they found this location and realized, oh, that's what that could be. Yeah, God, I don't there's know. No, there's no, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. So there's no way to do it. I know, I know too. Uh, uh, I was going to say Quatermass. What was the what was the uh, uh, scientist's name? I forget now. Royston. Royston. Uh, Dean Jagger. Forget it. Dean Jagger <laughs> goes to uh, goes to that little castle looking thing structure and goes in there and there's this vagrant old man in there with a still and everything like that. And I love this, the, the fact that the guy, you know, is there, hey, you want to drink of me? Me, me brew or whatever, and, and, and he's like, nah, I, don't I, think so. I did love, I did love the look on on Dean Jagger's face when he's like, I don't think I'm gonna get anywhere near that crap. Yeah, really, you can just see the little fleas jumping off the guy onto him. But the thing is, is that is that he reaches over and grabs one of those little things that was in Royston's lab, and and he goes to reach for and 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 Royston like smacks it with his cane and says, "Stay away from that." And that is what's so amazing is. Well, you would have known that the guy would have had to have picked it up already sometime. And it turns out there's absolutely no radioactivity. This thing should have been saturated with radiation. And that deepens the mystery of this of this film. You know, like I said, we're already giving you some heads up about what's actually going on. But, uh, you know, it kind of, you know, it keeps on and on with this sort of, you know, Okay, what gets rid of radiation? Isn't this sort of what the scientist is looking for anyway? Well, it's 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 just after this where we have the uh, the the good looking young doctor at the hospital uh, have his little uh, get together with the nurse and uh, meet a sorry melting end. Yeah, I mean they go in and they, the little boy has been as they just been, the parents have been informed that he's dead. The mother's crying. Yeah. The father's looking at scientists going, "Yeah, hey, y'all suck," you know. Yeah, look at the kind of crap you guys come up with to kill my child. I mean, I would be saying a lot worse as a father. But uh, so kind of weird the way that this goes from there's this real handsome looking. I don't know. Is he an orderly? What would you call him? A tech or something like that? Uh, uh, he's not. He's either a, he's either a tech who works in the uh, the X-ray lab or yeah, a, X-ray a, tech. a doctor, a young doctor or something but like that. But he's really handsome. And, and it goes where the, they're wheeling this kid past this guy and he gets on the phone. It's, it's, you're hearing that's ticking. You'll hear this through the film. Uh, the phone's going like, 
uh, like there's radiation in it. Yeah, the the phone. Yeah, the the phones. The phones. Uh, whenever this th- this thing is near, one of the things that we pick up on in the audience long before the the characters do is that the phones the, the phone line connections get really really crappy. Yeah, and and so. Um, he calls this girl from from uh, a nurse from one of the other parts of the building or whatever. Come on over and meet me in the in the X-ray room or whatever. And they're going in there to neck or whatever else, or maybe even further. I don't. They don't. Yeah, it's probably going to go. It's probably going to go yeah. further, but this is the 1950s, so they're not going to tell you that. So any any kid at the time thought, oh, he's going to go in there and kiss her, and that would be that would be it. <laughs> he's in there with that icky yeah. girl. So anyway, um, so they go in there and, uh, you know, she's actually like forward with him. She goes, I, I, I've heard that you're pretty, uh, you know, uh, uh, well, I mean, I guess we could say sexually active with the other girls or pretty much a Latin lover, Larry, or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, and, and she goes, I like that idea. And he's like, oh, my God, I should have known about this earlier. So they start kind of like messing with each other and, and starting to kiss on each other. All of a sudden, the, uh, the x-ray equipment starts up and starts moving around inside the lab. It threw this glass uh, uh, wall. And the, and the technician goes around the corner into the room with the glass. And the nurse can see this. We see from whatever it is point of view, we're back to that crackling noise and the same look that the little boy on his face with the light pouring up on his face. And this guy starts to like choke or choke up or something like that. And then he falls against the wall. And then you see his hand start to expand and blister and melt and all that kind of stuff. And like I said before, my brother, Mike Maddox, lost it when he was a kid when he saw this and then his face the guy's face just starts to wash away as he is radioactively melted and and then the last thing you see of the woman is her screaming looking through the glass obviously for some reason not affected by this radiation i didn't i don't know whether radiation can be stopped by glass or not or whatever kind of glass. Well, if it's if it's it's the same kind of leaded glass that you would have. That, like I say, that's the X-ray room, so that right. would be the the leaded glass you would be behind, so that you could operate the machinery and still be protected. Right, right. So, yeah. And uh, it's a great scene. It's uh, extremely horrific. I'm I'm sure that people in the 1950s, we can talk. I mean, that's one of the things that I've always wished that we could get a hold of is exit interviews from movies when they were brand new. Like I always oh, heard yeah. like it in, uh, in the Dracula, the hammer Dracula film, as we call it in this country, horror of Dracula, that people, when the movie started up on the first weeks or whatever there was up, that people were snickering because they were expecting the hu- Hungarian accent and over the top, blah, 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 kind of, kind of thing going on. And Christopher Lee comes out and he's very straightforward and, 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 and speaking the Queens and all this kind of stuff. And then they're giggling, they're snickering. They don't know what to make of it until the, his, uh, one of his brides or the bride or whatever you want to call it, tries to bite our hero on the neck. And then Christopher Lee kicks over the door with, you know, scarlet blood running down his face and hissing and fighting with her and throttling that guy while his face is losing all sense of composure. And apparently people were really shook up by it. That's the thing. Yeah, that's what I've I've always read. That's what I've always read, too. And the thing is, I could imagine the same thing happening at this film uh, a, a year or two earlier. Because I remember my reaction at Quatermass in the pit. I'm sure the people in the 50s were even less prepared for what they saw in this movie. 
because there was no American movies that had that kind of graphic stuff in it. I mean, not in not in fifty six. No, I no. mean they they had science fiction. They would have makeup. You'd have monsters. Uh, I'm trying to think of other films. I mean, maybe in the movie Tarantula, that the scientist's face is slowly starting to shift, but that's not the same thing as this. This is like somebody heinously yeah. dying, horrifically dying. You know, three seconds earlier they were alive, and now their face is liquid and it's pooling out on the floor. It's it's a pretty it's a it's a great scene. It really is. It's it's a it's a showstopper, and it, and it's the kind of thing that uh, even if you didn't like the movie. Well, actually, it might be one of the reasons in the 50s when you, that that would make you not like the movie. But even if you only kind of thought the movie was okay, you wouldn't forget that scene. Yeah, I mean, uh, I yeah, I mean, well, my brother didn't forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously not. I mean, and we saw it in 66, I'm going to guess. I'm going to say 60. So, well, it had to be because I saw Quatermass after this one. I'm going to say we saw this in 66 because that's when we moved to the Germany at the time. So that's... That's almost what a decade after it was made, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Exactly. So, uh, but anyway, so keep going. What happens next? Well, well, well next is um, I, I have I have two criticisms of this movie. One is uh, a, a kind of directorial or stylistic choice, and one is specifically about one scene in the movie. And I'll uh, I'll, I'll I'll talk about the this, the one scene right now because we're up we're coming up to it. You mentioned earlier where uh, we have Dean Jagger's doctor character, Dr. Royston, putting forth his hypothesis that about this thing that they're experiencing being a form of life that existed in distant prehistory when the Earth's surface was largely molten and all this kind of... I gotta, I gotta tell you, that, that whole thing where he puts that idea forth, it's as if they tore pages out of the script giving that <laughs> giving kind of some kind of build-up to this idea. And we just like, we got to get this filmed. Get it in here now. Because it seems like this idea is coming in from another film or somewhere else. He sells it. Dean Jagger you know, delivers it yeah. well. But he, I, I, I remember sitting there and thinking, okay, he just made three leaps, <laughs> three logical leaps to get to his final point. And I'm going, I didn't believe any of those three. Of course, that's what the movie, you know, that's what, that's where the story goes. And that's what it turns out to be. But it's like, he is basing this on anus extractus. He's pulling this right out of his ass. This is not something that any of the evidence in front of him would have definitely pointed him toward at any point, you know, until well after this point in the movie. And it's, it's one of those things where it's just like, I mean, and even that, even then we, his, his hypothesis fits what happens, but it's one of those things where you're going, okay, maybe we didn't need this explanation because that that is the one scene in the movie where I'm going, okay, I'm I'll I'll go with you because I'm enjoying this ride right now. But yeah, that's that's really reaching, man. That's reaching a lot. Yeah, I don't agree. Of course you wouldn't because <laughs> you're always wrong. How can you always be so wrong? It's so sad. Look, let me let me <laughs> okay, let me let me explain this to you. Okay, are you are you listening? <laughs> Yes, I am. In the words of the great Don Rickles, try to think. All right. (laughs) The guys are out there with the Geiger counter at the beginning, right? They got the Geiger counter doing this. They're doing the thing. The ground cracks open and something comes up from out of it. Yep. That's right. I mean, there's no creature like that on the planet's surface. So where the heck else would it have come from? Now, they said maybe outer, didn't they, somebody throw out, is this thing from outer space, whatever? He goes, maybe it's from the center of the Earth. 
not all life has to come from there. And that's what he said. I thought it was, I know what you're saying. You're saying that it's like, wow, you I'm put saying all this that in. at a certain well, point. But even he's saying it's a theory. He even said the word theory, which yeah, yeah, is yeah, about yeah, yeah. But the fact of the matter is, those guys were out there doing their little radioactive test thing, and the ground cracked open, and that's where they got attacked from. So my attitude yeah, yeah, is, is that, yes, it really is still a, a, just an extreme theory, but the thing is, it definitely, unless it's something that came from another planet and then went down in the ground or whatever, it's, it's, it's irrelevant. If he goes later, it goes, well, actually, we found it. It was from another planet, from Venus, and that it came... Went into the ground and it came up, you know, after twenty years of being under. Now see that, see that I would believe that. <laughs> that <laughs> Jesus Christ! A, a carrot. From I Venus. honestly, I, I, I think that it, given the the speed at which this movie moves and everything, and he's always he never says it's a hundred percent certain because they because right. the movie's smart. It's smarter than you're giving it credit for because. No, no, no. I'm, I'm giving it credit me, for being no, smart. No, no, I'm just saying. No, I was wrong. Now you be quiet and let me finish. <laughs> Even at the end of the film, they're not letting you off the hook that that's exactly what's happening. Because remember when for, they, when they yeah. finally knock this thing out or destroy it with the that sonic thing. And then still there's another explosion. You know, it's like, uh, I don't even know what the hell happened. And then it goes right to the end. I'm like, that took balls. That took balls. To do well, that. that that's the that's the standard that's the standard hammer movie thing I've made jokes about for years, which is Monster Dead movie over. But, but the know, thing is, just a, the Monster, credits Monster, the credits start Monster to roll Dead, immediately. Monster Dead movie over, but not before some unexpected thing goes off, and he goes, "This thing wasn't a hundred percent. What just happened?" They don't even tell you. It's like, ta da! You know, James Bernard kicks in. And then that's it. And I'm yeah. like, that took a little bit of nerve to, to say we don't have all the answers for what happened. Oh, I, I, it's a, it's a ballsy ending. That last that last uh, little moment there, where it feels like, oh crap, is something else about to happen? And then the movie ends. It's uh, it doesn't feel like the story was cut off. Which no. you know, in, if I'm just giving a verbal description of it. Uh, someone who's not seen the movie might think that it would feel that way, but actually it doesn't. It feels well-developed and it feels like a natural place for it to end. It's just that the movie at that moment has given you this, this kind of insecurity that, oh crap, maybe this is going to keep going. Something's, you know, maybe this is going to continue. So, I mean, I I know, I kind of know what you're saying about the, um, the, the theory that's thrown out there. I really think that's to create a link for the audience that's going, what the hell? And, uh-huh. and yet still, I got to give him kudos, especially for Jimmy Sangster, who's coming out of the gate doing this. It, a, I know. It's kind of impressive for it's that. It's not kind of impressive. It's incredibly impressive. I look at that and go, man, this guy really put together a tight, solid little written package. You know, it was good. Suggested this meeting because I think I have an idea what we may be dealing with. Perhaps one of you may have a solution. Then again, perhaps one of you may think that I'm talking a lot of nonsense and can offer a more logical conclusion. What's this going to be then, Adam? Fact or theory? Partly fact, mostly theory. I see. Well, carry on. We're all listening. I'd like to resurrect for just a moment, if I may, a treatise I did when I was a student, which has to do with the cooling of the Earth's surface. Hundreds of millions of years ago, the Earth was like the sun. No form, no solidity to it. It was just a blazing mass of energy. And then the Earth started cooling, and as it cooled, an outer crust was formed. The energy was still there, but it was being compressed beneath this crust. And as time went by, the crust grew deeper. 
and the compression became greater as this vast energy was being squeezed into an ever-decreasing space. May I interrupt a moment, Adam? What you're telling us is something every schoolboy knows. What's it leading to? I'm sorry, maybe I should skip the preliminaries. No, don't skip anything, Adam. I was never very bright at school. Well, then, in a comparatively short space of time, a matter of a hundred thousand years, man has evolved. And man has evolved from nothing to becoming the most intelligent creature on the surface of this planet. Now, considering the far greater span of time involved, isn't it reasonable to assume that the forces contained in the center of this Earth have developed an intelligence of their own? If we accept this, we must then consider what these forces would think. Their world is slowly being compressed out of existence. Therefore, survival must be uppermost in their thoughts. What's more natural in their search for survival than that they should return to the face of the planet where once they lived? Now, if you check, you will find that every 50 years, by virtue of the position of the Earth in the solar system, a greater pull is exerted on the surface of this planet than at other times. Quite unnoticeable to us, but 2,000 miles down. Who knows? And during the short period of time that this pull it is its most powerful, you will also find there's always been a freak earth tremor, and that each of these cases, a fissure has opened in the surface of the earth. Now, what if on these occasions, some of the vast energy trapped below had caused the eruptions or tremors in an attempt to reach the surface? What if, in fact, it did reach the surface? It looked around for a means to sustain its existence. For to live, one must have nourishment. And these forces are almost pure energy. Now, what does energy live on? Energy. Exactly. Energy can only be fed with more energy, or radiation, if you like. 50, 100, 150 years ago, these forces found themselves without any means of sustenance, and their mass became unstable, and they disintegrated. Now, we come to this 50-year cycle. This time, there's radiation. There was radiation in the hospital. There was radiation in my workshop. As long as this thing feeds, it will live. And the more it lives, the more it will grow. It's fantastic. I admit it does sound that way, doesn't it? But if anyone can offer a simpler explanation of what's been going on, I'd be grateful and relieved to hear it. You're trying to tell us that some sort of creature came up out of the fissure? Mac, I'm not trying to tell you anything. I'm just putting forward a theory based on the facts that we know. So what do we look for? I don't know. And what do we do if we find something? I'm afraid I don't know that either. How big is this thing supposed to be? Might be the size of my fist. Might be as large as a house. We can't stand about here. We've got to find this thing and destroy it. Destroy it? How are you going to do that? Shoot it? Burn it? Blow it up? Listen to me, all of you. We've been told a story based on a little fact and a great deal of fiction. I'm amazed that this story has been accepted by all of you without the slightest doubt or hesitation. I said just now I thought the whole thing was fantastic. I'll go further than that. It's absolute rubbish. Dr. Royston, you're a scientist. You deal with facts. A man of your intelligence capabilities has no right to talk as you have. You astound me. Yeah, Sangster is one of those guys who I've always. Have you ever? Did you ever read his uh, his his autobiography? Uh, I read. There's a book of his I've got. I can't remember what it's called. Well, the autobiography. Well, it's kind of an autobiography. It's called "Do You Want It Good or Do You Want It Tuesday." No, I, I I've heard of that one. This was another one. It's like a hammer scrapbook or something. Oh, okay, okay. but it was good too. It was good. Yeah. Well, I, I I gotta say it's really great, and he he never he never takes on airs at all about his screenwriting abilities or the reasons for the choices that he made in different scripts and things of that nature. He's very upfront about uh, the, the needs and the, the, the requirements and the, the budget constraints and all the various things that would go into yeah. how he would construct what he wrote. Right. And that, and that's a, that's a real joy. Uh, I gotta say, I did finally recently read, uh, he wrote a couple of, uh, spy novels in the late 60s okay uh called uh about a female a female spy a female uh spy named touch feather uh 
Okay. Uh, and I finally read the first one. Uh, I got it. On, I got it on my Kindle a while back, and and finally read it a few months ago. And it was really great. It's a great. It was a great little, uh, great little novel. I highly recommend it if you if you want a, a fun uh, '60s spy thriller. Touch Feather is a good place to go. I'm going to try to. I think he he wrote at least one more with that character. I want to try to get my hands on that as well eventually. Of course, this is in the late '60s. By then, he's he's definitely got enough writing credits under his belt where he's. He's done. He's done a lot of work and knows his craft a lot better than he would even at the time he wrote *Curse of Frankenstein* and *Horror of Dracula*. Right. But oh, and let's not forget. I must admit, uh, Jimmy Sangster wrote my all-time favorite episode of *Cold Shack the Night Stalker*. Oh, which one? Uh, *Horror on the Heights*. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, Jew, the, the, the Jewish monster. Yeah, is that the one where there's the Nazi flag at the end? Right. Yes. Yeah, I watched that one again probably within the last six months. Yeah, that was a good episode. Not my favorite one, but I still really like it. I think it's one of the three best. Yeah, they did. A, they. It was weird because I remember when the whole idea was that Kolchak started off great and just slowly it was a, a complete arc. That's not really true. There was that is not true. Still, yeah, it goes up and well, down. Well, I mean, I think most of us even believed it. I think I believed it for years, and then I went back and watched some of them. I go, no, there's some that kind of aren't so good, and then they kind of go back up, and then they go down, and they go up, and everything like that. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a good episode. I really like it. It really is a good one. But back to Jimmy Sangster, I think that um, what he was, you know, what he what he got known for were the gothics. Because of course he was he was tied in with Hammer, but honestly, some of the the kind of uh, Psycho ripoffs that he wrote for them in the and for a couple of other studios in the '60s were were more mature and more interesting works from from a certain point of view. I think that he did some amazing stuff there, and I think that uh, Sangster is one of those guys. He he always kept a sense of humor about his work and what he was doing, and uh, I think that he's 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 definitely not one of the he's not unsung. That's that would be ridiculous to say because if you're a Hammer fan, you know Jimmy Sangster, but. The, the things that he's most remembered for are not necessarily the the most accomplished stuff that he did because like I said I think that he got he, he was he was very good from the jump which this movie proves I think he matured and, and and tried a lot of different things as he went along and he's just one of those guys you know if you, you could sit down and say yeah he, he turned out a couple of he, he turned out some things that were not very good right well yeah I, I am not a I'm not a particular fan of lust for a vampire and I don't think he was either but Matter of fact, I know he wasn't. But anyway, and you know, and and you know, his near the end of his career, he he was writing a lot of American television, not just Kolchak the Night Stalker, which was which was great, but also you know things like BJ and the Bear. So yeah. Let's yeah. you know, let's let's be let's be clear about what we're talking about here. I'll, I'll, I'll be writer. honest with you though, but, when it comes to like Lust for a Vampire, I mean, we we've had these. I mean, there's been a lot of people discuss the level of certain Hammer films on kind of stuff, and that one's definitely not high up on the list. And there's definitely some moments no. in it that I kind of cringe, but I'll tell you this: there, are, I'll still take it over a lot of the other films that people try to shovel off on me. And I'm not talking about I'm talking about like there's stuff that just seems to be so standard that I will gravitate back to that one and watch it just for the the, the hammer esque reasons, the sexiness, the the, the usual weirdness that's in those kind of films, the Carmilla films, although it's the weakest of the three by far. By far, by but, far uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I think uh, a, a bad Hammer Karnstein film is still better than a lot of other films, you know? Well, I'll just say this. I mean, what when, when people who are Hammer fans think primarily about Jimmy Sangster, they think 
Curse of Frankenstein, Revenge of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula. Sure. Yeah, I think about uh, uh, the Mummy. His you know the, the 1959 Mummy, which is fantastic. Brides of Dracula, but I think when he was allowed to be a little bit more adult, his scripts for things like Scream of Fear and Paranoiac and uh, Nightmare, uh, Hysteria, yeah. things like that, the, the things that were kind of known as right. you know, psycho ripoffs, the kind of movie, movies yeah. in that same vein, I think that that is some truly great stuff. I think that that is a that is an entire vein. Thank goodness a lot of that is now easily available. I, I know I know Paranoia. Oh, I just is, watched. I I just watched Maniac Paranoiac uh, again about three, four weeks ago. I, I really like that movie a lot. Yeah, yeah, and it's it is that thing where uh, I think Scream of Fear is brilliant. I think Scream of Fear is yeah. just an incredible film. But the the thing is, he wasn't a one trick pony. You know, the fact that he you know he ended up writing, and, and I'm and I'm sure being paid very well to write scripts for American television. Uh, is is not the end all be all. Uh, I will say that uh, I will forever hold hold one particular film against him that he wrote. I don't know how involved he was in it, but uh, in 1981 there was a film called The Devil and Max Devlin, and that is one shitty fucking movie. <laughs> you know, I, you're talking about? The, are you talking about? The uh, one did you ever with, see uh, that? Bill Cosby and uh, Elliot Gould. Elliot Gould. I yes. never saw it. I, I looked at that and said I have no reason to be. As a youngster, as a young kid, as a young kid, I was taken to that and saw it in the theater. I it was one of the first movies I ever saw in a theater when I realized, wow, I can actually be really bored by a movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I had my experiences as a kid where you were stuck in the movie theater and you're like, oh my god. I mean, there was just some of them that you're just like, you know, you 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 wanted to go, you know, grab a quarter and call your parents and say, or a dime or whatever it was back then and say, please. Please, please get over here and get me the hell out of here, will you? Please, because this movie sucks. Luckily, that didn't happen too often. But uh, but then but then even even with that though, got to give him credit because he he wrote the the script for Deadlier Than the Male in 1967, which I just really get a kick out of. It's a it's a you know a kind of a James sort of girl, Bond girl commando squad kind of thing. Is that the one? Kind of sort of. Richard Johnson's in it. It's uh, yeah. That's funny because I was just. I mean, I was shocked. I forgot the other day. My brother came over. This is pre pre coronavirus, so my kids were here, and we put on uh, a zombie. And I forgot Richard. I didn't even remember because I hadn't seen it. I don't think since it was at the movie theaters when I saw it last. Oh yeah. And that Richard Johnson was in it. I mean, I'm he's, like, he, and, and he's very good in it. This oh, that is, world, that world weary doctor. Deal, yeah. 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 I mean, he was a good, he was, he's a good actor. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I know, I know he's in this one that you're talking about too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in deadly to the male, Richard Johnson plays, uh, Drummond, uh, bulldog Drummond, bulldog Drummond. That's what that is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, I'm yeah. 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 Film. I got to watch that film someday. Oh, it's well worth seeing. Dude, Sounds like El- it'll El- be on El- a good uh, double bill with fathom or something. <laughs> well, uh, let's just say Elkie Summer and Sylvia Cosina. Yeah, trust me. Uh, and Richard Johnson playing uh, Bulldog Drummond. Trust me, it's worth your time. Uh, cool. Cool. Yes, indeed. But back to what we were talking about, which was X the Unknown. Yeah. Um, oh, that's where we were. Yeah. Because Rod, Rodney, Rodney went on a, on a tangent there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, went, I went down Tangent City. Peter, what did you see down there? I didn't know what it was. It was like something out of a nightmare. It was horrible. We'll talk about that later. Now you get in the car, Peter. I told you I had my orders, sir. They were to take action if anything was found down there. What sort of action? 
kill whatever it is and concrete the whole thing over. Concrete it over? You don't mean that. Those are my orders. Well, Major, when do you start? Tonight. Right away. Sergeant. Right, sir. We did not talk about uh, the director, the, the director weirdness with this film, which is that it was prepped by one director and then uh, taken over and actually shot by another director. Uh, Joseph Losey pr- uh, prepared yeah. the film and was and actually apparently shot the first two yeah. or three days on the picture before he was replaced with uh, uh, another another director. The guy whose name is actually on the film, Joseph Losey, was a blacklisted. Uh, Director blacklisted in Hollywood during because of the uh, ridiculous uh, Red Scare during the the fifties. So he le- he had left the United States and was in Europe making movies uh, at the time. And quite an quite a good director, uh, believe me. If you're a classic movie fan, you've probably seen some of his movies. Uh, let's see, The Boy with Green Hair, The Prowler, the great film noir, The Prowler, which yeah. is really good. The surprisingly good uh, 1951 remake of uh, Fritz Lang's M. I did not expect that movie to be nearly as good as it was. Uh, huh. Sleep. Uh, I love. I love uh, uh, the Damned. Oh well, yeah. That's the the film he eventually did end up getting to make for Hammer. Uh, the Damned. That's a great yeah, yeah, movie. The, it's also known as movie. These Are the Damned, and. Uh, I'm sorry. These are the damned. Is probably I. I well, said no, no, it wrong. I mean it's I it's it it's known under both. I'm thinking of the band. I'm thinking, I've been listening to the album, uh, the new album from the Damned, the last couple of months. So it's like, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, these are the damned. I'm sorry no, about no, no, that. That's cool. Not the damned. But uh, you walk into a store and you go, hey, you got any damned records? And they just kind of yeah. you like you're the freak that you are. Right. No, but it's these are the damned. Is a great is a great uh, it, great it movie. Really I loved is. it. I watched it again right around the time I watched Paranoiac again. Oh, that'd be a that's actually a pretty good double bill. Although very different movies from depending yeah. depending on how yeah. you look at it. But he also made uh, that pop art lunatic film that I kind of really love, Modesty Blaze in '66. You know what's funny? I know of it. I've seen the artwork a bunch of times. I know the comic book. Never seen. The movie and I want to. It's fun. It's not. uh, You can see why uh, fans of the novels and the comic strip were were a little pissed because it it really does. It really kind of uh, falls apart at the end and it falls apart kind of on purpose, but it's still kind of frustrating because it's very well cast. Well, that's one of those things where most superhero stuff before. Superman the movie like ninety five percent of it it was it was always going to disappoint yeah 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 you know I mean uh, it, I mean that was the beginning of let's try to see if we can at least capture some spirit of the comic you know and I and I mean I love the, the 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 Superman television show and uh, I was always a fan of like let's say the Green Hornet see, I was never a but, fan of the I was never a fan of the the Superman television show even when I was a kid and would would see it in reruns. It, no, I didn't like it. I didn't yeah, like it. I didn't like the Superman TV it. show. Yeah. What happened is, is I started working for the printing company I worked for. I had to get up really early in the morning and go into work like around three, four o'clock, maybe four o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I and and uh, Nick at night was playing two shows that I never liked back to back, and I started watching them every morning as I got up for breakfast, and I ended up loving both of them well especially one of them the the uh, one of them was superman and then right after that was the bob newhart show oh i love the bob and, newhart show 
and I and I and I I got both of them. I I understood. You know, you've got to think about a '50s kid seeing Superman on television. I saw it in like 1969, 1970, and I looked. I said, "This doesn't even seem like it's a superhero show." I mean, it seems kind of this, that, or the other. And I got a respect, but I had to put it. I had to put my mind in the mindset of a kid in the 1950s watching this mm, stuff. I can so see in that, that, I can see that. In that way, I mean, I'll, I, I'll, I'll take it way over the Batman television series, a, a show that I completely loathe. With, oh, with, really? With a deep, oh, I hate it. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, I have some affection for it, but I'll be honest, I've never been a huge fan of it. I do have it, and I do. I have affection for it too. I've got yeah. the Blu-rays. Yeah. I, I, what I saw first when I was in Germany is that the the movie came out at the theater, and I really liked that the best because an hour and a half of it's fine, but two and a half years of it, uh, two and a half uh, you know seasons, years of yeah. that thing, seasons or whatever. And I I just I mean to me it set superheroes back. I mean it even the radiation of that affected movies so long. I mean even into George Powell's Doc Savage and stuff that the guy cried about when he was showing it to a friend of mine. Yep. I mean it was like yep. George Powell personally said so he looked over George's grin. He goes. They, they really ruined this. It wasn't his film anymore. And it was even some of the guys from the Batman TV series. Bill Self from the 1951 version of The Thing. Talk about somebody I'd like to smack the hell out of. They, they came in and they just couldn't believe that they could do Batman as a drama, so it became a comedy. Yep. And there's a lot of people listening to this podcast right now that are probably ready to hang me from the yard arms or whatever. But I look at it as uh, uh, it's, 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 it was... Oh God! I don't even know. It was a, 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 a you you cheated you 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 tricked us. Well, the thing is, I have I I don't know when it was, but I gained a perspective on because when I would be when I was able as a kid to see episodes, the very rare times I was able to see episodes of the Batman television series, I loved it because I was a kid and I thought it was serious. Well, see, you're the other person that said that, and I was watching the show in in '69 uh, and. It was Mr. Freeze or something. I got him with the with the freeze gun, right. and I was like, "Is this a comedy?" Because it seems almost like it's a comedy, almost. And then they hit Batman and Robin with the freeze gun, and it didn't work. And Robin said, "That's because we had on our bat thermal underwear." And I just <laughs> went, "I just that's it, damn it! This is crap." And I had a friend of mine that lived across the street that hated the show too. I loved. The other show that they made, which wasn't a comedy, The Green Hornet. Yeah, yeah I yeah. loved. I loved that show. I will, I I will say that is that is the, the the superior show in my opinion, and of course, one you can't you can't get your hands on legally still. No, I mean it's it's really weird. They killed themselves to get Batman because of all the copyrights and all the this oh, is yeah. and the that's the legalities. And they finally got that done. And I will say this: I bought the box set. I look at it here and there. I love the color. Yep. I love looking at the the guest stars that they bring in. Some of these people are really having a great time. I love I love the Cesar Romero. I love Frank Gorshin. Exactly. Uh, Burgess Meredith. Yeah. All the all the cat women. That's all fine. Everything. But but to me, still as a kid, I felt like I I felt like we got we we got a dirty trick. It was a dirty trick. Well, it let me tell a, you why was, I've never been able to warm up to the to the Superman television series. From the uh, from the fifties, which is there are no damned supervillains. It's a variation on the same story every time, which is you know gangsters, criminals of some type or another 
fucking around, well, fucking around doing Superman's, shit. That was what Superman was in the comic books a lot of time too. I mean, I, maybe I, later I, I got understand. into the science fiction guys. But yeah, I mean, to me, it's like you look at that and you look at like, okay, let's let's go with somebody who really had a whole heck of a lot of super villains to fight was like Dick Tracy. Yep. With all that crazy stuff that was going on in his comic strip. I mean, I love that comic strip. Or or Spider Man. Yep. Batman had a ton of villains. Spider Man had a ton. I mean, Batman. Uh, Spider-Man and Dick Tracy probably those three had the greatest amount of whack villains, just crazy the stuff. Flash just, has a has a pretty amazing rogues gallery too. Yeah, um, yeah, he does, and I love the Flash. I especially I'm a massive fan of like uh, was it late fifties, early sixties Flash with that Green Lantern and Hawkman. I, I yeah, love that yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's great stuff. Um, but but boy, the, wait, the wait, wait, we're way off track again. This one I'm going to blame on you, just because you you blame me for the last one, even though this might not be your fault. <laughs> I can't remember anymore. But I'm going to blame you for this one. I'll take the blame. <laughs> well, uh, no, I mean, but yeah, I mean, this is just Mark and Rodney and Stream of Consciousness. Stream of Consciousness podcasting. Rated R. <laughs> Well, I will say that the the switch in directors, I do wonder because I I do like Joseph Losey as a director a lot, and I do wonder, uh, as do a lot of other people, what it might have been like if he had actually made the entire movie, because uh, the one other critique that I I have of this movie, and I mentioned it a little while ago, uh, is that I feel that the first 20 or 25 minutes of this movie are too slow. They're introducing about they're introducing the characters to us, but it need it needs more energy. It, it's a little too flat, and I and I think that one of the things that's kind of one of the things I like about the Quatermass movies, you watch those movies and they start quick. I mean, you're into it. I mean, the- well, that's be- remember too though they're chopping. Like this is what I'm coming back to. They're chopping down three hours down to an hour and a half. Right. I mean, you're gonna you're 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 cramming it through. I mean, it's like, oh, what's that garden hose? How much water can go through there? I don't know. Well, get as much through it as goes through a fire hose. But that's the, that's the thing. This one, it it it, it begin it begins too slowly. They're introducing too many characters at the first too slowly, and there's there's even a part of me that wonders why you know why we needed uh, to introduce the uh, the director's son character who you know who. Wants you know has to go behind his father's back to to conduct experiments and to help out uh, Doctor Royce and it's like because that character really they they don't pull the trigger you know, spoilers once again folks they don't pull the trigger and do what you expect them to do and kill the character at the end he doesn't have a heroic end at the at the end of the film which would be the, which would be the reason to introduce him up front because I rewatching this movie I realized that we have that that kind of what I consider to be wasted couple of minutes introducing him introducing him in the first few minutes of the movie. And then quite honestly, he just disappears from the movie until he's needed in the third act to do something where I, th- I automatically think every time I watch the movie, okay, so we're reintroducing this character to have him do a, do a heroic act and die. But that the, the movie subverts that expectation, which is pretty cool, but it doesn't keep me from feeling that the first I mean, that's not the only thing in the first part part of the movie that I think, you know, kind of slows it down. I think that the the scenes where we're introduced to Dr. Royston are overly long and could have been more dynamically directed because it's, you know, we're it's it's all wordless. And that's cool because you're just watching him conduct one of these experiments. 
Uh, and that's that's all well and good, but it's it, it's just this long drawn out thing that we don't understand at all until after the fact. And it's one of those things where it's like, come on, come on. It's just it's it needs us. It needs a, a t- it needs more of a pace. It needs to pick up the pace a, a little bit. And like I say, that's a minor that's a minor complaint. But I do wonder if that's something that uh, would not have been shot that way if it had been done by Joseph Losey. Okay, Michael Bay. <laughs> well, oh God, you know I loathe that fucker. <laughs> I actually like uh, I like The Rock and I like uh, I, Armageddon. But I after do, that, I do not like either one of those films. I I, I, I kind of don't care. I don't care. I just don't care. I don't care. Okay. I think The Rock is. Now, I think The Rock is aggressively stupid, just like all. Michael it Bay is films. stupid. It's it is stupid, but at least it's stupidly fun. After that, after you move on to the Transformers and stuff, it's just, let's throw shit at the audience. I mean, I hated those films. So anyway, back to my point. First off, (laughs) your whole thing about the beginning of the movie being wrong. All I can say is Nick's Nine Frankenstein. Wrong. It's fine. I can't believe that you're saying it's slow. I'm watching this thing and going, this starts off at a pretty brisk pace. And not only that... They, they they get to they build uh, character development amongst these guys that are sort of like just out there doing this radiation. But but I still like them. Oh, the, the stuff with the and soldiers. Like, no, the stuff with the soldiers is just fine. It's, but, they're, but they're giving you the meat and potatoes of the film, and you're talking about it's got to be too fast. I mean, to me, I never felt the movie was too slow. I never did. And your other thing with the the young man. Who's the hero? I'm sorry he didn't die for you. I'm sorry he didn't throw himself down the pit. Well, that's for just you. it. He's not the but hero. The he's is, not he's the hero of the father. movie. He is kind of near the end of the film. He's the one that takes the chance on uh, on getting uh, killed with that darn uh, plate of metal and the and the radioactive material. Yeah, if he was that the hero of the movie, he would have been in the center of the movie. He he, he, he disappears is, for forty five minutes. No, 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 no. He is he is what his dad should be and the father starts to realize that this is not a thing about him the hero of the film is almost split up amongst a couple of different people he's partially one i mean a war isn't won by one person and then the brains of it was uh um, uh, dean jagger but this young guy was sort of the i'm i'm i might be smart like my dad but i'm not an old you know asshole like he is and I, I thought he was fine. I don't know. I, I think you're thinking too much or something. Don't hurt yourself, you know? <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'm like, sorry, I'm like, sorry, that I'm I've, listen, sorry that I've offended I'm you with my intelligence, review. Mark. I'm, I'm sorry. Review. I'm listening to this review and my jaw is dragging. I'm like, what the f- <laughs> heck is I talking about? So, it's like the movie's an hour and a half long and it moves like a rocket. I mean, not, I not until we saying. not until we get past uh, the, the 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 stuff with the children. That that whole creepy section, that that whole creepy section at the castle at night with uh, the Fraser Hines and the others. The other. Well, that's when you get back. That's to the cr- that's great stuff. Uh, but but you're still. I mean, I find the whole thing though. I mean, we're getting the buildup of of something. Some what pulled this thing to the surface? Military dudes having these maneuvers. The next thing is. Oh, the you problem. know, you know, what we haven't. No, I forgot to mention. Uh, my my favorite Hammer character actor of all time, Michael Ripper, as one of the soldiers. 
Oh, he's wonderful. He's incredible in this movie. I, I mean, it's it, the thing is with with Michael Ripper, you're never gonna, you know, there there was never that film where he was the lead. So what you're always doing with Michael Ripper is watching him in these great little character roles and just seeing, you know, just praying that he gets more screen time and more and more dialogue. And in this, he's got a nice chunk of time on screen and some really choice bits of dialogue. It was he say you better get back back past that hill or I'll kick your head in. It's like, oh, I know that okay. his his threats are are a, are a gorgeous thing. He's he's, great. he's a wonderful guy. I mean, I I've got the book. I haven't read it yet. His um his uh, uh his autobio. Uh, well, it's, it's a bio. Yeah, well, it? it was it was a bio by um. I worked with the guy briefly. We did a cover. For, I, I I took a an old Little Shop of Horrors cover and kind of added a few people in, including uh, Jeffrey Bailden, who's no longer with us. But Bailden got a copy of the portrait I did of him from that new cover. But the the guy, and his name escapes me, and I'm sorry about that. I haven't heard from him in a long time. He sent me, because he had done this biography, he sent me like six autographed photographs of Michael Ripper from different films. Oh, cool. Yeah, Damn. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. One of them that's up on the wall here is the pirate pirate one, but I mean, there's one from a war film and all that. Michael Ripper is a little jewel in in uh, uh, Hammer's Crown. Yep. Um, I get the feeling that most people say that he is probably the most in more Hammer films than any other actor. Oh yeah, I think, right? I think that may be true. Yeah. But he was great. But I remember reading the beginning of his, just very briefly starting to read the beginning of his autobiography. I remember he acted like uh, his dad was was pretty rough on him. That's the impression I got. That was about as far as I got. But I'm going to sit down and read it sometime. But what a great, talented, solid actor. I'm trying to think of the one. Is it... uh, Is it The Reptile where he has a bigger part in it? Or is it... Uh. There's... There's one of them where he's got a bigger part, like he's sort of like the second second hero in the film. There was uh, Plague of the Zombies, and there was uh, the Reptile. And I'm trying to remember one of those two. He had a bigger role in. He well, in um, if I remember correctly, in Plague of the Zombies, he was uh, he was a police sergeant. That's the one I think he had a bigger part in. Yeah, I think and he was he was the uh, he was. Tom Bailey, he was like a local bar. He owned a local bar in The Reptile, I think. Yeah. Because, Those yeah, as a matter of fact, I know that's it because I remember Pete, like a, a, a criticism I once read from some someone trying to be cute about uh, The Reptile is, ah, oh, The Reptile, that, that's, that stunning, exciting film where we get to, to watch the entire process of making a cup of coffee as Michael Ripper thrills us with that process. I'm <laughs> just like... Dude, really? Yeah, yeah. I, like, I love the reptile. I think it's a good. Oh, film. I, oh, I do. I think the I, I love the reptile, and but I think I, I think Plague of Zombies is uh, Plague of the Zombies is better. But uh, I love both those films. Yeah, I, I, I'd say they're for me. If you really have to like point at one of them and say, eh, to me, they're close to even, Stephen. They just kind of, and, and I think they're both shot on the same sets, right? I mean, it's the same. The same area, the, the same area of the country. Uh, yeah, yeah. By the by, the same director. They were both John Gilling films. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that one, and they, and they both, yeah, I know this one's a little earlier, and I don't know whether people would consider it a little bit of a better film. I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It depends on who you talk to. But it kind of those, those two kind of remind me of the Gorgon a little bit. There's that little town sort of thing. Yeah, yeah this is true. Sort of thing. I mean, but they're, but they're all great films. Now, uh, he also had a fairly substantial role in a movie that, some people don't like of uh, the Hammer fans as much. I actually really like it. Still, is the Mummy Shroud? 
Oh, I love the uh, I love the Mummy Shroud, and he's got a great role in that too. Yeah, that yeah, that, that his death film. in that movie, that death in his uh, his death in uh, the Mummy Shroud is I gotta say it's heartbreaking. That he he's yeah. he's he's weeping and he's on his knees. It's it's really it's really heart wrenching to watch him because he's such a nice guy character in that movie. Yeah. I'll tell you what, there's there's scenes in that one like where the guy, the one guy's got the photographic acid in the jar and the mummy breaks it over his face. I mean, that was when Hammer started that sadistic, that sort of, that was like the one of the earliest things of them. It wasn't just horror anymore. It's like, let's get a little sadistic in here. Let's, you know, break open a vat of acid in front of a guy's face. And the guy's like, it's like burning him and he's screaming on the ground. Ugh. But it's like, I like the film a lot. Oh, I, love I think it. it's yeah. great. Yeah. But um, anyway, okay, so what film are we talking about? Oh, yeah, King, <laughs> King Kong. Oh, yeah, uh, George Powell's War of the Worlds. Oh, no, no, X the Unknown. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. So um, now that we've done talking about what you hate. About yeah, well, yeah, yeah, hate. That's exactly how I put it. I I described it as hate, of course. You have rage issues. <laughs> so um, uh, how far are we got? God, you know, we really have never even gotten past you know you know what the x-ray tech you know what we're we're, we're just gonna have to cut to the chase uh do you like this movie (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh it'll do in a pinch governor (laughs) it'll do it'll do um so anyway we'll get we well okay what happens okay the the x-ray tech is the face melts and all this kind of stuff. And oh, we're, we're, we're well past that. We have the we have the two soldiers who are left to guard the pit. One goes to investigate a glow, what? and uh, the other one hears his scream and goes to investigate. Then those two characters they get to play off of each other, kind of as a as a British uh, mutt Jeff or yeah, sure, yeah. They're kind of they're kind of picking on each other. But what's sad in this case is that one of them gets melted. Of course, it's off camera. We don't see Anthony Newley using the machine gun. Yeah. Once again, we're back at the pit and this monster. What we're finding out is whatever the monster, when it's done, it goes back through that crevasse that it's made uh, at, 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 front, at the beginning of the film. It's like it goes and it feeds and it's looking for radiation and stuff like that. And this thing is getting worse and worse all the time. And they start figuring out that this creature is going to start going to nuclear power plants to really have a nice big feast. So they start worrying about their drawing lines on maps and all that kind of stuff. Uh, There's a scene in the film where... uh, um, God, what's his name? Prisoner. Prisoner actor. Leo McKern. Uh, uh, Leo McKern. And Dean Jagger and them are standing there, and this and this mud creature, this radioactive mud creature. You finally see it, and uh, you know, special effects wise, I mean, it's less Bowie. I mean, sometimes his special effects were successful, sometimes they weren't. There, there's a lot of scenes in this film I think that do work special effects wise. Some that are some a little, are a little iffy, iffier, yeah, yeah, a little iffy. Um, but he ends up. Um, uh, you see this mud thing going across to get a get a little bit of radioactive food, but at the same time, there's a guy at the gate of this place that's working, and he gets melted, and and you feel terrible for him. He's like trying to hit the hit the button to sound the alarm. Oh, and I know. Like laying face down, you can see the side of his face is that's a away. that's a great that's a great scene because that's that's very well played. Yeah, I mean, he does. A, it, it's very well handled. the The special effect is. 
is uh, it's creepy. You see pit holes in the side of the guy's head. They don't show it, show it, but you see enough of it to to realize that you know it, it's bad. So, uh, and then there's this there, there's a scene with uh, uh, the creatures going to move across the countryside, and they're following with a helicopter at night and everything. Now, one of the scenes I really remember, even as a little kid, and it, it always is is everybody is in this one town has got to go into this church and it's like uh, you know they they kind of go in there and but but there's like this little girl left outside i know, I so, know so, they, somehow her, somehow her mother just fucked up and left her outside it's like how the hell did yeah, that I'm like really man you stink as a mom man there was a couple of rear screen projection shots i can tell like when a cop car uh and you gotta realize this is like that real quaint you know, uh, English town or Scottish town yeah. sort of thing where it's like, uh, you know, where you see the, the beautiful old houses in the background, and everything like a place you'd want to live, like all creatures, great and small kind of thing or something. And so they show this, um, uh, um, uh, this road and the, and this mud blob thing is kind of coming down the road very slowly or whatever. And the cop cop car pulls up and I guess you can see where there's a, uh, uh they're actually driving up to a projector. And, yeah, yeah uh, kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm kinda, st- I, no, I still no, like that kind of, st- I like that kind of oh, stuff. No, 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 don't get me wrong. I yeah. mean, uh, it, it was, it's, it's, it works. I mean, it was used uh, very well in James Cameron's aliens. They did that too. Uh, but the but the uh, but the cops like almost pull up to it and then they back out and go in. I mean, yeah, that's pretty good given the budget of this film. But then this little girl's outside playing and there's this like stone fence right next to the church and it starts to kind of like break and kind of the the rocks start to fall off on it and then yeah. boom, this blob is starting to come towards her. Now, luckily, this isn't some kind of modern monster that you know strike super fast and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's not a, a, a you know, in a, in a predator sort of mind. This is just a, almost like a, a what's the word I'm looking for? It's almost like a, a phenomenon of yeah, science. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, this, this, this stuff, uh, this stuff moves at the speed of plot. So we're, we're good. We're good. It's safe. Well, but the, but the, 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 the <laughs> Is this is this back to you hating the beginning of the film? No, again? no, no. It's me realizing that you will not acknowledge it. Acknowledge what? My joke. The what joke? That the blob moves at the speed of plot. So well, that's, uh, that's, anyway, the, that's the deepest sigh I've ever heard. The little about. girl almost gets gobbled up by the radioactive <laughs> blob. Hey, well, now wait a minute. Before we go any further, one, one serious one serious point here that I think it's time we we, we took took by the took by the horns here. Uh, this is this is 1956. Yeah. Uh, the very famous and very lucrative film The Blob came along after this movie. Oh, I didn't realize. That. I wasn't sure which came first. Oh, it was definitely this. Yeah, I mean, I would actually have called this if anybody had asked me, I would say this is a Blob film, but. It's it's actually radioactive, slow moving mud film is what this one is, and the blob is more biological. It's got its own. It's well, it's, it's an alien creature. That's true. So it's an alien creature, but it's all about. It's almost like a living stomach. This thing doesn't like eat you, and then I mean, this thing is just sort of like there's a person. Oh, I ran over him. Sorry. And keeps going, but doesn't really get much benefit from a human being that it just that it engulfs or burns up. Whereas the blob is absorbing. As a matter of fact, 
where the victims in this movie just burn up. They're yeah. never actually ingested. The blob, the thing that's creepy about the blob and disturbed me, which I saw, I think I saw it. You know, well, I think I saw it around sixty nine as well. Is that is that that thing wants to ingest you? It's got it's it's a it's creepy. It's a pretty creepy thing. I remember seeing that film as a kid and being pretty disturbed. The thing crawling up the arm and eating the doctor, and there's that yep. glop going around inside, and and you know. Well, a couple of years after The Blob, we also had one of my favorite uh, movies of this type, which would be Kaltiki. Oh, did you and I talk about Kaltiki? Did we do a show on Kaltiki? No, no we I have guess, not. No, that we was Monster. Not. I did that on Monster Tech. I love Kaltiki. I was yeah, shocked. but that, once again, this is within just a few years of each other. Yeah. We have, we have this film, we have The Blob, and then we have Kaltiki, and it's in... Uh, I, I really like all three films. I'll be honest. Sure. In, a, in a way, I kind of give Kaltiki the edge because it, it's just it just feels grittier. There's just... uh, there's an intensity to Kaltiki that is truly disturbing. I'll tell you what: when they bring that guy up out of the water and they pull his diving mask off, and you can still he's still breathing, but his face is basically gone, like he yeah. would be in one of these Quatermass films or something. That's really disturbing. I didn't even notice the first time I saw it. I think was on YouTube, and so I didn't even know it. And then I got the uh, Arrow Blu-ray, that Blu-ray, which is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. And I'm watching. I'm going. This is really pretty creepy. Showed it to James, my son, and he was like, he, you know, I mean, there, there's moments in it that he was agreeing. It's like, yeah, this is pretty disturbing. There's some for especially at that time period. But you can tell definitely that the Caltiki people had seen. Uh, the Quatermass films. I yes, mean, I agree. Yeah, and uh, which is great because I mean, I remember the first time I saw this film, I was like, "Oh man, yeah, this is like a Quatermass film." So I mean, I was cool with it. The thing is, is that Les Bowie did special effects in this movie, and like a lot of Les Bowie's films, some things really worked, and some did. Depending on how much money he had. I watched some things like I think of the ending of the castle and evil of Frankenstein blowing up great special effect. Yeah. I think of, uh, even though I still love this movie, speaking of Quatermass style films, uh, the Trollenberg terror, or as it's also known, the crawling eye, uh, it's, it's a, it really is a good film. I mean, my brother looked at me like I was crazy. Like he wanted to punch me. And then my son (laughs) looked at me like I was crazy and he wanted to punch me and, and he did. Uh, is is that, well, they took turns, you know, it was sort of like, and a left and a right and a left and a right. And so, but, but I, I, I'm sorry. I know that the special effects and we got to admit this, Rodney, the special effects at the ending of the crawling eye are really, really bad. I I mean, I I would not, I would not dispute that. They, they were, my brother and my son were shocked as to how bad they were, but there's still, I mean, when the when the tentacle reaches down and grabs the guy, and he looks like he's made out of clay, and he was built in three seconds in a in, <laughs> yes. in a in a nursery. <laughs> I'm actually supposed to do a cover for that for Little Shop of Horrors. Uh-huh. Uh, I think like for next year, but I'm going to run it through the Mark Maddox filter and make the guy look not like a little clay little thing that was. <laughs> You're going to make it look like an actual human being. I'm going to actually make it look like a human. It's going to be incredible. <laughs> but uh, but the thing is, is that but the but the acting in the film, the plot behind the film, the intensity of the film is really damn good. And I know it was a television show too, just like Quatermass was, but which is lost. The the, the television show's lost, which is just a shame. But uh, but Les Bowie 
could could do really good, and he could do not so good. I know. Well, that, I mean, you know, you had he, he had, he had a certain amount of he had a certain amount of money, he had a certain amount of time, and you got what you got. And he what for yeah. for what he had to work with, I think he. To be honest, his batting average was damned impressive. Let's put it that way. Well, I know, I know this. I know he passed away uh, the night he knew he was him and his team were getting the Oscar for Superman the movie. He died the night of the Oscars. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean that's the story I heard. You know, so when somebody calls you up and goes, "Hey, Maddox is full of shit." Well, that's and I, I will say, I will say, yes, of course, Maddox is full of shit. But to what are you specifically referencing? But he is correct that the opening fifteen minutes of X the Unknown does move quickly. Uh, so, <laughs> so no, but but that's what I heard is that he was he was in bad shape, and that the, that the night that they were going to present the Oscar for Superman, they didn't even have a competitor that year. They just handed it to those guys. Yeah, really. Is is that is that yeah? Because it was really had a lot of special effects in it, and uh, and I think that was the night he passed away. That's the story that I heard. Um, I think I've heard it more than once, so I think I'm brave enough to say it on the show. Some some film historian is going to skewer me, though. I know it, but anyway, <laughs> don't uh, worry. Don't worry about it. I don't know that the film historians actually listen to us. But the thing is, is that if you look, if you in in this movie, sometimes some of the special effects work real well. Some of them are incredible, and some not so much. Like you see the blob going across the landscape, and he he looks cool. But then you see two live wires from a telephone line or a electrical line start dancing on. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I mean, it's like you could have just had him fall on him and then just do a little sizzle on him. You didn't have to do this dancing thing that just, I mean, sometimes Bowie did not, uh, understand the thing about distance and size. I mean, like he always, like a lot of times when he used flame, I think it was a limitation of the money with the money they gave him the cameras. Or anything. Flame, like, flame and water were always problems. Well, but with him, they were really bad. I mean, the ending of, 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 uh, even this movie, the flame at the end looks like you know three or four people holding matches. You know when it when the <laughs> yeah, thing blows know, up. Yeah. Look at the little bit of licky licky sort of you know fire. Yeah, and, I, and I know. And since earlier in the movie, we actually have we actually have real th- flamethrowers being used. It really kind of points itself out as very different. So yeah. Yeah, you should have hired the flamethrower guy to do the flame at the end of the movie. But um, anyway, so the monsters on the attack, kill, 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 death, death, death. <laughs> Uh, you know, love, heartache, a uh, lot of, lot of nudity. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, yeah. There's just tons and tons of nudity. It's just, well, it's, 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 it's basically, it's basically kind of just a bunch of soldiers nude running oh, around with flamethrowers. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it's called X, the unknown. X, the so, unknown. No, but I, I just realized something. I got, I got to point out something that once again proves you wrong. Our, <laughs> our young hero <laughs> Our young hero is willing to go down into the crevasse and, and see see what he can see, and he finds like the body of the one soldier that's one of the been soldiers, yeah. yeah, and there's like another person there too. They're not even sure. So there's that whole scene. So I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm talking about the beginning of the movie. But hey. he's at the beginning. He's at the beginning. He talks to him later. Is like, yeah, I, I like you better, and I like my dad to uh, Dean Jagger, and yep, then later yep, he goes yep. down in the crevasse, and then at the end of the film, he's there with the nuclear little vial of nuclear fuel to lure the monster into the pit. So he gets, got- gets the jeep stuck in the mud. Okay, so he gets the jeep. Look, you see that mud in that? No, no, no. It's just that I really did think that's where they were going to kill the character. I really did. Well, I'm sorry to, he disappointed you, and the guy lived. 
No, I, I was impressed that the movie led me down that path so effectively that I was surprised that they didn't do it. That was impressive. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I still think the character was very viable. Not somewhat viable, not a little bit. I think that he was quite good, and I think I don't know what to make of you. Oh, the actor's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Just oh, out of curiosity, just out of curiosity, do you? I mean, because you know, this is this film was sandwiched in between the first Quatermass film Hammer did and the second one. Uh, of those three, so films, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa! So you're telling me this movie came out before uh, Quatermass two? Yes, it did. Oh, I thought we had said this established earlier. It came out after Quatermass. No, it too. came out. It came out after the Quatermass experiment, but before Quatermass. Uh, oh, okay, okay, I, okay. Martin, thanks for correcting. Okay, well, go ahead. What's your question? Of, of those three films, which do you think is the best? Oh, I'm not even going to go there. It's kind of a rough choice, in my opinion. But I, I almost, think I think all three of them have got strengths that the other ones don't have. I, I'm going to about- agree with you there. Yeah. I would say that they're all uh, great. I, uh, wow, that's just, I mean, to me, I look at them all and I go, uh, you know, for a low-budget uh, science fiction movie, A+, plus, not A+, plus, but A, A, and A. I mean, given the limitations of what these guys were working with yes. and, and the quality of British actors and the, and the, and the seriousness with which they approached it, all three of the films. I mean, I've heard some people say Quatermass Two is one of their all-time favorite movies. I'm like, yeah, cool. Oh, it's a great, you know? it's a great film. I wouldn't argue with them. But Quatermass Experiment. Um, I tend to, I tend to like the Quatermass Experiment the best of these three. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, it's sort of like Sophie's Choice or something. You know, I mean, what yeah, supposed agree. to do? Uh, but there's a third kid. You know. <laughs> That was in the that was in the director's cut. There was a third. there was a third kid. <laughs> she she had she had to consign to the flames. The, yeah, she kicked her off the platform even before they got up there. <laughs> so uh, no, but um, I I can't say that's a that's a very unusual question. I've never been hit with that one before. Well, it's um, just that those three these three films. I mean, oh, they they, they are they are peas in a pod. So yeah, I mean. Uh, yeah, it's impossible to say. I, I could not um, I could not sit there and look at one of them and go that you're less than the others. To me, I'll say this. X the Unknown has something more amazing if you know the background of it. Because you expect wild concepts that are pulled together beautifully by Nigel Neal. True, very true. You've got Jimmy Sangster, who's like a newbie, who's like a helper on the set who gets handed this job and pulls it off brilliantly. So it's a very strange thought to say which one of these is better. I, I, I couldn't say. I for, just couldn't say. For me, honestly, it, it does come down to the kind of ballsy choice that Val Guest made as a director with Quatermass Experiment. Of course, he made, yeah. the, he made the second one as well. To film it as if you yeah. were filming a documentary, to give it that immediacy, that, that that's really impressive. Even, you know... Decades later, it's still an impressive choice for a film of that type. Oh, I know. I got an answer. Sure. Uh, Quatermass in the Pit. Thanks. Good night. <laughs> well, yes, I didn't include uh, Quatermass in the Pit because that is one of the best films they ever made. Yeah, I know. It's weird, too, because, I mean, they really, by that time, were so established. Yeah, yeah. As the, as the uh, gothic company, and yet they went back and they made another modern-day film, and God, was it brilliant. 
Remember, was, though, all along through, throughout the 60s, as we were talking about earlier with like the uh, the quote unquote psycho ripoff films, Hammer was always doing something more than just the gothics. They knew better yeah. than to put all their eggs in one basket. So No, no, you're right. You're right. I'm, I'm talking about what what history kind of like runs to first. True, in true, the, true. In, in the case of, uh, in the case of, um, uh, you know, the psychological thrillers, you know, stop me before I kill and, and all that kind of stuff, which I, 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 I didn't like that one. I tried to watch it again. Stop the other me day. before I kill. Yeah. You don't remember that one? No, I don't know that one. I have to, I have to say. Yeah. Well, stop me before I watch it again. <laughs> Sounds like I'm not going to have to stop you. Uh, you know, there's the snorkel. Which I've still not uh, seen, I have to admit. Yeah, I mean, that came in part of that, one of those suspense packages or something that Hammer came out with in yeah. DVD, so I got that, and it came, like the really great film, Cash on Demand. That is a phenomenal film. That is a, really great, is. a great movie. I mean, the, and that, and that, in a way, that movie is kind of reminds me of what we're talking about tonight, is nice, tight little packages, high-quality it kind of these guys hammers always reminded me of Swiss jewelers. You know, it's a guy in a room who knows his stuff and he's got a lot of talent and a lot of it rides on that. You get some basic materials and you put something together. That's beautiful. And hammer. That's the way, that's the way that they've always, they've always were, you know, they, they always did it. You know, I mean, I guess people can say it deteriorated as they got more and more R rated and everything like that. And they started going. Yeah. For the cheap, I, I don't see the it. Job. I don't see it that way. I see, uh, I see them trying to stay afloat in a changing film market. And I think well, some of those, yes, exper- I think yeah, some of those experiments that. were very successful and some of them less so, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, well, still, I mean, we got to have more, naked women and we got to have more gore i mean that really was part of it too you oh, didn't yeah. you didn't have to do that to maintain a quality product no no, no. it wasn't to maintain a quality product that was it was quite a different thing it was once again See, trying to give the audience as perceived what they what was going to get them in the seats which is what sure. he had always done i mean remember it was those bright red bright red blood splashes and the and the first couple of big gothics that they made that were all the rave and, and had people screaming that these were obscene movies that no one should ever see all the way back in 1957. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean I'm a fan. There's some of the R-rated ones that they did. I oh, mean, hell yeah. I, I love uh, uh, Twins of Evil. Twins of Evil to the Devil of Daughter. Uh, Frank Not a fan of that one. Oh, I, I, do, I, I do. I, do, I, do I don't like, like that one at all. Uh, yeah, um, another area uh, where you're wrong. That's pretty kind of impressive, really. That's just... No, no, you can't say that. That you can, cannot mathematically prove I'm wrong. <laughs> so let me put this in a scientific terms you can understand. Shut your stinking hole. So uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, uh, I, I never really liked that one. Just sort of it's kind of an exorcist ripoff or something. Even I was though try, I, know I was trying Dennis to remember, Wheatley, was uh, Frank? Sin- no, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell was PG, so that doesn't. No, it was. That was my yeah. that my that was that um uh that was my first movie to ever see at a drive-in. Oh wow! And okay. On a triple bill with the second one, Captain Cronus Vampire Hunter, and oh, the third love one, that movie. and the third one, Horror Express. Ooh, even better! So yeah. All my first night at the drive-in, and those were the first three films I saw. I loved it. Oh, I'll never God. forget. And but they lied in the in the local newspaper. They said the movies were rated R. Well, um. 
They used to do that, so I heard. I can't Some people remember. say yeah, 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 they they might. No, they were PG. They were rated were they? PG. I can't, I can't remember the ratings on because the ratings. No, they were the, PG. The there was nothing in, in retrospect matter so little, but I, I can't There's remember. There's no nudity in those films. There's no excessive violence. I mean, oh, they were no, they were considered excessively violent at the time. Remember that uh, Frankenstein the Monster from Hell had uh, some violence trimmed out of it to get the rating that it got. Well, well, uh, well. What was trimmed out? Did they ever put it back in? Uh, some of it has shown up. Uh, there's the the famous Peter Cushing gripping the the veins between his teeth while the hand is being sewn oh, back okay. on. That has yeah. been found. And then there were scenes that were there were some shots that were trimmed out of the finale where the the the, the lunatics. Uh, rip those characters, uh, rip, rip that character rip apart. Rip the monster apart. Yeah, right. there, there was a, there was a bit more. Uh, there was a bit more there that they trimmed away because they uh-huh. were they were getting some shit from the ratings board. Yeah. Yeah. See, to me, I mean, the thing that I would have thought would have gotten at the R rating is him being fascinated by busted glass and and cutting that guy's throat. But even then, you see him lunge in with the glass, and then it, the camera shows the guy and his his throat's cut. So even that is sort of uh, I wouldn't say tame, but it's not it's not graphic. No, it's not uh, in terms of actually seeing it. And so, but yeah, I mean the the last version I saw of Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell definitely had the uh, vein in between Peter Cushing's teeth. Yeah, that's been recovered. Yeah. Yeah, it's been recovered and stuff like that. But yeah, Captain Kronos, there was no reason for an R rating and definitely Horror Express. I mean, they're all they're all good, solid nineteen early nineteen seventies PG rated films. But there's no R rating in any of those yeah, to I, me. Yeah, I guess not. Like, but like I said, you know, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell did get trimmed down to get the PG yeah. Rating, so. Well, but then you look at uh, you look at Twins of Evil. And yeah, I that's R rated. They were they were yeah. they knew they, they knew they were going to include enough nudity that it was going to be R rated no matter what. So. Yeah, I mean, and then uh, yeah, I mean, is that your favorite of the Karnsteins of the three? Um, possibly. I have a lot of affection. Well, we know for, Lust for a Vampire is your least favorite. Least favorite, and the, I have to say, um, Vampire Lovers. I do like Vampire Lovers. Any anything with yeah. Ingrid Pitt, of course, automatically has my attention. But it's right. Uh, I do say I, I will admit that uh, any of those movies where you have a, a gorgeous buxom woman with blood dripping down between her breasts, I'm and I'm pretty much all there. I'm I'm very ready. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> we are off topic again, Mister Maddox. Uh, I think we probably ought to wrap this up because holy crap, we keep going off target so often here. That's because we um, have things to say to each other. Things we that... actually are like having a conversation, <laughs> yes. talking about stuff. So um, I just blame yeah, I just I mean, blame okay, you. So, I just blame you for every time things go off the rails. So well, you know what? I think you're having a good time going off the rails. So we are now talking about the the guys stop the thing and it guy and then at the end and and the end and X dies. Yep. Yeah. We guess we sort of think so. <laughs> anyway, okay. So maybe this is okay because we're not telling people the exact end of the film. It, it, it does build to a climax. There is uh, speaking of vampire lovers, uh, <laughs> it, there's uh, uh, no, it, there, it does. Um, it does build to a climax. I find the whole movie satisfying. I think that the ending uh, builds in intensity and all that kind of stuff. And there's some genuinely good um, uh, uh, cre- creepy moments in this film performances by everybody. Nobody, Nobody drops the ball in acting. Of course, you know, it's it's Hammer. So, I mean, you'd be shocked if they did. We talked about some of the gross, uh, gruesome stuff. 
that is still a little intense even by today's standards, I think. And it's just a very well it's a very well made movie. I think it's uh, I, I'm I'm kind of grateful that it was my first Hammer film. You know? Yeah, yeah, really. Because well, first of all, because I, I don't know if it um, at that age allowed you to like recognize that this was a movie made by the same studio that made the next Hammer film, whatever that may have been. I don't know if you're if you were cognizant at, at that age of of witnessing the same, you know, witnessing, because, you know, a lot of people never pay attention to who makes what film. They don't care. Right. And at that age, it's less likely that you would. So, uh, what came after that one? Was it, was it uh, curse of Frank? Well, well, no, no, I'm just saying, I don't know what you saw next. Oh, uh, you know, what was funny. That's a very tough question. I can give you a little bit of a, the three or four that floated around next that I saw, that was a scream of fear. Is that the one where the guy is in the pool dead with all yes. the all the that really creeped me out as a little kid. I saw that around 1969. I yeah, saw uh, oddly enough one that I'm doing the cover for this week, which I've actually been working on for the last two or three weeks is uh, Hound of the Baskervilles. Cool, yeah. And uh, Evil of Frankenstein was one of them. One that's not technically, well, it's just not Hammer, although it's Terrence Fisher and Peter Cushing that really screwed me up was uh, uh, Island of Terror. Ooh, uh, great film, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it really it really freaked me out. And there was one or two other ones floating around. But Scream of Fear I saw twice really quickly, like one right after the other. And I remember that dead guy in the bottom of the of the. It wasn't a pool. It was like a well. I guess it was a pool, but, it, but it's kind of it's kind of a pool, but it's it's not it's not like a. If I'm it's not, it's not, not a swimming, swimming pool. pool. It's yeah. sort of like a uh, yeah, like a little uh, like a pool that you look into or something. But the but the vegetation had grown up in it, and she go and she goes down in the pool. Then there's a dead guy at the bottom staring at her, and I I, I remember that. And finally, it was decades later when one of these sets of Hammer films came out. And I was watching it, and I said, oh, there it is. There's that scene. I remember that. I remember that <laughs> really creeping me out as a kid. So there was a few of those. Night Creatures was one of them. Uh, ah, yes. Uh, Curse of the Werewolf. Uh, oddly enough, I didn't see uh, uh, Horror of Dracula until almost, I don't know, three, four, or five years later. It was it was actually one of the later Hammer films that I actually saw uh, off a of CBS late movie, I actually saw Frankenstein must be destroyed way before I saw Horror of Dracula. You know, which was unusual, but I, I love I love Frankenstein must be destroyed. I think that's their best Frankenstein movie. It's still it's it's got that controversial sequence though. Well, no, it wasn't supposed to be in there. Yeah, there's yeah, a know, rape scene of the leading lady in the film, and that was not supposed to be in there. The guy, this is what I'm talking about with Hammer getting kind of cheesy, is the guy supposedly walked up to him and said, "There's going to be a rape scene. We need some sex in this." And yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like call it cheesy. I would call it, I would go with the term you used earlier, which is sadistic. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's just one of those things where it was unnecessary, and it was really, really out of character for Peter Cushing's character to all of a sudden just rape a woman. Cause there was very little, I mean, in the first Frankenstein movie, he was having an affair with the maid and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And he had her killed, but him just, just all of a sudden now. And when I saw it, well, see, it uh, could have worked. It could have worked within the film. If it had actually been part of the script. In other words, if Frankenstein was doing that because it 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 had some it had some purpose for him to control the character or to control what she would right. say or do. Well, but you have and, to realize. But, but the way it's the way it's just dropped into the film. No, it really doesn't. Well, but for most people, I mean, when I saw it on CBS Late Movie, they, that scene was completely cut. 
that wasn't put back. Oh yeah, that wasn't put back in until years later. So the first time I saw it was when they ran it on Cinemax, and I was watching the film. Oh great, great seeing it again and all that kind of stuff. Probably had the VHS going, and all of a sudden that scene comes up, and I'm like, what? What? And even then, at that moment, I said, you know, this this is not. This is I, 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 my brain almost told me they told him to put that in there. This is a throwaway scene just to just to spice things up for the theater audience. But the rest of the film, you really if you leave it out, there's nothing in that movie that lets you know that that happened, that that scene happened. We're frank. Well, that's, that's true. That's why I say that it could work, but it would have to be written properly into the script. And yeah, it's just not. but it's not, and it was never supposed to be. It was a last yeah, minute yeah. thing by one of the heads. I forget which one. So we're, but that's a very different world from the world we're talking about. We're talking about you know late late fifties well, and and well let's and, let's 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 wrap this let's wrap this up really quickly. I want to I want to I want to confess something to you. Uh, as much as I love. Uh, the Blob as a film, mm. I have to say, I think this and Kaltiki are better movies. Yeah, me too. I'll you say do? this. Oh, you think I'll, so? okay, I'll say good. this. I'll say The Blob. Uh, well, there's some things I really don't care about for The Blob. I mean, a movie where you've got Steve McQueen and his acting stinks is <laughs> that's bad. Well, bad, and he's obviously too old to be playing the character he's playing. Well, I mean, that's what they always did with teenagers. They were always being played by people that were, you know. 25 30 years old but the thing yeah. is is that i mean you had good act i mean steve mcqueen it was, it was such a great actor i was looking at i was watching bullet today uh he's such a great actor and and he downplays stuff but in this film it's the director and everything else and then the leading lady in that film who you would see a lot i think what on andy griffith or something i mean she they're good they're good they're good actors the yeah. movie i will say what makes the blob really kind of pretty damn ballsy for the year it was made is that whole part we discussed earlier with it just basically being a living stomach monster. Yep. That's, yep. that's the, and the, and the kind of unstoppability it. of it, the, the kind of feeling that you just can't do anything about it. So. Yeah. So, but the other films are more robust outside of that initial plot. The blob latches onto, no pun intended, latches onto that initial plot. Meteor <laughs> comes down, blob comes out, starts digesting people. That's the plot. These other movies we're talking about have, okay, it's a radioactive mud thing. It comes from the center, possibly comes from the center of the earth. Uh, you know, it's going to follow these different trails to the radioactivity. You know, who's going to live, who's going to die. Is, is, is the guy that heads the company up going to forgive Dean Jagger, blah, blah, blah. There's a bunch of things in it that are like that. And Kaltiki is a fairly in-depth sort of a plot too. Blob, not yeah. so much. Blob's got a great opening fun pop theme song. Uh, it's it's in color. I don't really know if you could even consider that a plus per se. Although yeah, it's, I don't know. It, yeah. it's kind of amazing for that time period that a movie that looks so low budget in some ways is in color. They must have, you know, oh, we got a guy who in town who can process it. Uh, but uh, but there's also some real heavy flaws. That little kid in his little PJ jammy jammy things. You know, it's like, please let the blob get that kid with the cap guns shooting at it. Please just kill him. All right, you lads, take cover. Come along, all of you. Get your heads down behind this bank here. Come on, Tom, what are you waiting for? What's going to happen, Sarge? I'm going to kick your head in if you don't get it down. That's what's going to happen. 
Okay, X the Unknown, uh, scale of 1 to 10, what do you give it? X the Unknown, I give it a 7. A 7? Yeah. Just a 7? Yep. No. Quatermass Experiment's an 8. Quatermass 2 is an 8. And uh, Quatermass in the Pit is a 9.5. Wow. I would say uh, I would give uh, Quatermass... you got to realize Quatermass and Quatermass 2 are based on you know, much heavier, much denser material from Nigel Neal. So they st- strip it down. You've got yep. an eight, an eight, and X the Unknown is an eight, 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 eight. And then uh, Quatermass and the Pit is uh, a nine. But there is no movie that gets a full 10 from me because it's not possible. Oh, wow. Really? No tens? There's no such Seven. thing. There's no such thing as a 10. So there are no ones either? Uh, yeah, there's a bunch of fucking ones. <laughs> I thought if you're going to eliminate the, the top number surely you have to eliminate the bottom one as well maybe I don't know I haven't really gone into I mean there's movies that you walk away from and it's like I tell you what when I watched Invasion of the Eye Creatures I thought well that's a something below a one I don't even know what that is <laughs> a Larry Buchanan film it's about a good, yeah, so yeah, good solid one the best Larry Buchanan film is about a three, yeah. But I mean, I look at something like Lawrence of Arabia and go, is there something in it that does not make it absolutely perfect? In 2001, is there something that doesn't make it absolutely perfect? You can find something, but a nine and a half is a... a, a, a Quatermass the, the Pit's incredible. I know, but it's, I mean, I'm, what I'm saying is, is that, is that even to me, even the movies I love absolutely the most, my all time favorite, the top 10 films that I've ever loved, I can look at them and go, there's, there's this and this and this. And that's not me being picky. A nine and a half is an incredible film. Yep. We're not talking about anything that's, you know, it's up there where I would rate, you know, things like uh, the Wild Bunch or Once Upon a Time in the West, or uh, I don't yeah, even know exactly. if I. Maybe the problem is, is that we're talking about science fiction films. I mean, to me, I look at Lawrence of Arabia and I go, okay, what can I find in there that doesn't make it a perfect ten? I could, I could find something. Uh, uh, another great film, The Sweet Smell of Success. It's oh yeah, that's a, that's a that's almost a ten right there. That's, that's almost a ten. That might even get closer to a ten than some of the other films because it did film in New York City a lot, and there was all this stuff in it. And oh but, hell, man, that dialogue! Oh, Jesus, it's wonderful. that fucking dialogue in that movie. Incredible. Hey man, hey man, we got to wrap this up. What the hell? Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. Anyway, <laughs> Mark. <laughs> Are there Rondi. anything? Do you do you have anything coming out, Mister Rondo Winner, that uh, you could talk about uh, that uh, maybe people don't quite know about yet? Um, I've got. Um, well, I just it was just announced the other day that the Kiss of the Vampire Blu-ray is coming out right, from Shout right, Factory. Right. I think we just talked about earlier that Evil of Frankenstein's coming out from Shout Factory. Yep. Uh, apparently, the um, Blu-ray uh, for uh, the Frank Langella Dracula that they did. Uh, at the, near the end of last year, uh, won the Rondo for best Blu-ray. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. Yeah, I was and I loved list. doing that cover. And then um, there's a couple of more, but I'm just not allowed to talk to them. They have to announce them. I've got yeah, no problem. Uh, yeah, I've got uh, one or two, one one more for right now that I, I've done that we're waiting on. 
like I said, Little Shop of Horrors has uh, got. Um, oh, oh! I did see your your incredible uh, Bionic Woman cover for Infinity. That's oh, that uh, yeah, piece. yeah. They that really is popular. I'm, I'm so, I hate to say this. I'm sorry this came out during the coronavirus because a couple of my guys have slowed down with handing me the jobs right away because yeah. they don't want the magazines to go out to a bookstore that's empty. So I'm holding off on stuff for Scream, although I've got two covers prepped. One of them, I will say this, was about a film we talked about tonight. That's Ooh. all I'm going to say. That's it. I'm not going to say anything else. Ooh. That's all it. right. Hint. Very, ni- very nice hint. Uh, Mark. But uh, Mark. everything's going good. Yeah. Plenty plenty of stuff to do. I want you to uh, stay isolated, stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, thanks for coming on the show again, man. Man, I appreciate it. I love coming on the show and talking to you. He wouldn't know it from listening to you. Shut up. (laughs) We'll talk to you later, man. All right, take care.
what's going to happen, Sarge. I'm going to kick your head in if you don't get it down. That's what's going to happen. 